This episode we're going to be talking about acts of violence and I know that seems like a pretty broad title to sort of speak under but they're action thrillers for the most part crime thrillers but I have to say blow for blow this probably has the highest body count and the most gore that we've encountered for a while I guess we did do that whole Texas Chainsaw retrospective that's that holds my tongue a little bit but I think once we get into the movies you'll understand what I'm talking about Eric Jurgens is back on the show to talk to me about these tough bloody violent thrillers and I'd love to hear your feedback you can send me feedback at rankinreview at gmail.com that's r-a-n-k-n-r-e-v-i-e-w at gmail.com you can also check out the website at rankinreview.ca. And if you enjoy Rank and Review, you have good taste in podcasts. So maybe you want to try the Terror Table podcast, or the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, or Cobwebs, a gothic horror podcast, or a new podcast, which we will be discussing at the end of this show. Thank you, as always, for listening to Rank and Review. Now let's do this thing. Oh, yes, and blah, 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 spoilers. And blah 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 language, because I always forget about the blah 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 spoilers and language, but there's spoilers and language. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> Eric Jurgens is back on Rankin Review. Thank you so much yet again for coming back to the show. You're talking to us from far off romantic Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, you're down to the single digit temperatures, I'm sure. Uh, it's plus two here, which is supposedly frigid. Yeah, it's it's actually the same temperature in Saskatoon right now as it is in Vancouver. We have standing water on, like, the, the ascent of January. It's kind of weird, actually. Like, a week and a half ago, it was, like, 30 below with a 45 below windshield. <laughs> and now everything's dripping and wet, so everything's backwards. Unfortunately, that, that that's not what we're here to talk about, as fun as that would be. <laughs> we're here to talk about the new Eminem album. That's right. Has he got a new album? Sweet. Yes. It's actually one of my favorites, honestly, although I think I like Eminem for different reasons than Eminem fans like Eminem. Do you want me to lose all my cool credibility with you? Sure, go for it. I'm excited because next month Pearl Jam releases their first album in 12 years. <laughs> well, then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That was a pull I wasn't expecting. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
hey, whatever. Uh, uh, I'm nostalgic for my uh, Seattle sound of the early 90s. Maybe they still got it. Maybe they still got it. Maybe, yeah. Maybe that 12 years was spent just polishing the best album ever to be unleashed on man. So none of that has anything to do with acts of violence, which is the uh, title of the episode that we're about to do uh, parse into. Um, a lot of times when people say, know that I'm into horror movies, if they are a little bit judgy about it or they make that old lady face, the reason is, is that they're so violent. They're so ugly. Why do you like that? But these are the same people that will tune into John Wick and like have a blast with it. A lot of the movies that we're going to talk about are not only more violent, but have a much bigger body count than your average horror movie reviewed on Rankin Review. So why is it okay to have this level of vicious, frenzied violence in a thriller, but it's something that is poo-pooed within the genre of horror? I'm not sure. It's like you said, the first Halloween has like a body count of four people, five people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, in, in some of these movies, it's about that. But in some of them, people just drop like flies. Um, and I, it, I have not come with a prepared essay on why it's oh. okay for horror, not acts of violence. But it definitely is. There's something, there's something weirdly more palpable like if anything it's disturbing that these kinds of movies are more palpable to general audiences than campy horror that is not trying to pretend in any way shape or form that it's anything that uh, i mean sorry if you take offenses anything serious right uh, you know like the horror movies are ever always um not always they are very often in on the joke or uh, to put it a certain way right like yeah. they know You'd hope so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes well and it's just the way that the lives are spent so cheaply in my mind. Like, I enjoy the John Wick movies. This is not me judging people for wanting to watch these action movies, by the way. I enjoy them, too. But the John Wick movies have, like, the the death toll of your average first-person shooter video game. And most, most of those deaths don't mean anything. What I will give points to most of these movies for, anyway, is that the deaths seem to count a lot in the, the at least this bunch of six. It's not just this cartoon gallery of people falling down and we don't give a shit. There are some moments in several of these films that made me go, damn. <laughs> and uh, it's not just me getting off on the violence, although that's what gets us to buy our ticket, let's be real. Uh, there's... I don't know. There, there's there's more weight put to it when we give a shit about the characters. So I was actually surprised at the strength of the list. I don't know if you're going to agree with me, um, but my my opinion on some of the movies had improved, and uh, the new ones that were fresh to me surprised me greatly. So um, they're not all winners, but uh, I, I, for the most part, enjoyed the list. I definitely agree with that. I might be wrong. I think this is the first rank and review where I had seen none of these prior to uh, recording. Um, horror comedies, I don't remember if I saw all of those. But definitely, um, this is one of the few where I did not know what I was going into for most of these. And in fact, I had not heard of most of these movies. Um, so this is uh, about as fresh as I've gone into uh, an R&R. &R. Um, and it was a... Yeah, it was a stronger list. Even the movie... There's one movie in particular that... There's several that I'm not jazzed about. 
But there's no Les Mis on this list. There's nothing there's that's no, like no. so infuriating that I'm energized by how much I hate it. <laughs> Which, I mean, that was entertaining to listen to, but I mean, I, I, I don't think we should have to put ourselves through that just to entertain the audience. <laughs> uh, no, are they all perfect? No. In fact, some of them are, are quite problematic, but uh, there's just, it's just an interesting list to me. For the Even though you couldn't really honestly call this a list of horror movies... They kind of, they kind of, like, they have that edge to them. A lot of them feel kind of strangely, incredibly tense and have these moments where I feel like I'm watching a horror movie. Like, I know it's supposed to be an action thriller, but right now, like, I'm only using the edge of my seat and I'm biting my fingernails. So um, I think there's more crossover between a good action thriller and a horror movie than people sometimes realize. In both. I definitely think like thrillers and horror, like that comes from the same, it's come from the same plot for sure. Both rely on stakes being ramped up a lot and us, you know, caring about the characters and the situations they end up in. And if that's not done well, it doesn't matter what your genre is, but those two, they hold hands so completely, particularly when we're talking about like Upgrade and Green Room. I, I almost think I could, like, if I was making a list of top ten whatever horror movies on a given subject, I, I, I would consider them because they have that strong an undercurrent of, of horror to them. So here we go. Is there anything else you wanted to say before I list off these movies and we start the show? Oh, yeah, for sure. I heard Lee Beckman call me out on the last released episode, and uh. I want to throw down the gauntlet at him. I just... <laughs> I need to, if you'll give me a platform. Absolutely. There is, Lee said that I'm never getting the championship. And there is someone out there who taught me to always believe in yourself and fight no matter what, even if you're just proving something to yourself. And that person was Rocky. And on the Rocky Rank Review, my wife and I did a double championship, one of the greatest moments of my life, and the rug was pulled out from under me. Not a few weeks later, and if he thinks he's just gonna chuckle me down and I'm gonna give up it, no, Lee, it's on. Let me tell you, this is the second busiest I've been in my life, and I made time for this episode because I'm coming after you, Lee. And it's not just rank and review. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do your job better than you. I'm gonna get integrated into your family better than you. I'm gonna slowly take away everything you cherish. Wow, that got real. <laughs> yeah. Well, the current which is funny. I, I was gonna say, as, and as much as I threw that that challenge, I already have a feeling like we're not gonna match. No matter what, I'm never, I'm never gonna. Every single time we record, I do this where I'm like, ah, do I play to win or do I play to me? And every single time I play to me, so maybe yeah. Lee's right, but I'm still gonna try. Well, for the record, the the championship has changed hands a few times now. Like uh, Matt won it. Uh, a few episodes ago for Urban Horrors, and then very recently, my friend G won it for this uh, Universal Classic Monsters episode. So uh, I've noticed that it sort of stagnates, like nobody wins for a while, and then all of a sudden it tends to get handed about. So who knows? Maybe the stars will align. Yeah, the trick is to be the last person during the handed off, and then like you want that valley afterwards. Where That's right. <laughs> But make no mistake, Lee wants it. He wants it bad. Yeah, and I want to take it from him. I don't even want it. I want to take it from him. I just want him to not have it. Okay, well, I'm going to list the movies here, okay? Um, we're going to talk about two movies directed by this guy, um, Jeremy Saulnier. Saulnier or Saulnier, I'm not sure. Um, 
He's got two other movies, if you like these, because I'm a fan of his. Uh, he did this movie called Murder Party and a Netflix original called Hold the Dark. So if you, uh, if you want more, there's more to be had. So yeah, Blue Ruin is the first movie we'll be reviewing. Running Scared from the director Wayne Kramer of a movie I really like called The Cooler. Upgrade from Lee Winnell. King of the Ants from Stuart Gordon. Brawl in Cell Block 99. Actually, we reviewed this guy's previous film, Bone Tomahawk. It's directed by Craig Zoller. And Green Room, also directed by the same director as, as Blue Ruin, uh, Jeremy Saulnier, with uh, Patrick Stewart playing a, a, a leader of a bunch of racist, skinhead Nazi folk who uh, mess with a punk band. I think it's going to be a good time, brother. Let's do it. for the mystery. I don't mean to scare you. You're not in any trouble. I just thought you should be somewhere safe when you found out. With somebody. He's going to be released. clearly a low-budget affair, um, and I think that it's one of those things that you can just tell almost right away, like within a few minutes of watching the film, that the guy behind the camera knows exactly what he's doing. I would love to tell you that I, as a you know, film critic and as someone who's made a movie, understood how he laid these edits on top of each other to build such like excruciating tension almost right away. But that's what happened. The movie kind of grabs you by the throat and never lets go. But it's not like some of the other thrillers we're going to be talking about on this list, this hyper crazy sensory overload. It's almost the opposite of that. But it's so grim and it's so real and so authentic that it does feel horror to me almost. Uh, Macon Blair plays this mysterious, seemingly homeless fellow who, when he finds out this individual has got out of jail, all of a sudden kicks into this plan of awful vengeance, and it tips over a bunch of dominoes and causes a lot of problems for he and the people in his life who he cares about. It's a brutal, ugly revenge thriller, and uh, it way overperformed for me, but I'm happy to hear a second opinion. <laughs> um, This movie... Uh... Man, sorry. I, first of all, I want to apologize to the audience. I am all kinds of jumbled, so I'm going to uh, misremember a lot of things. Uh, I don't know if it was two episodes uh, that we recorded ago um, where we did, uh, uh, I guess, fantasy horror. Um, okay. And there was the movie, which ended up, I think, being on the top of both of our lists, A Dark Song. Right. Um, this is similar to A Dark Song because, like you said, within the first moments, you're like, ah, this is being made by filmmakers. These people know how to properly show, not tell. 
these people know how to convey like emotion, like, how to get their actors to convey just the right emotion, just to give you just enough to keep you wondering without spelling it out. These people know how to do tension properly. Um, I think the first words are spoken like five minutes in, which is pretty long for a movie. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it really, it really performed in that way for me. And in a similar, like you're saying, um, it, the movie starts out, yeah, and this guy finds uh, that he's, uh, someone's gotten out of prison. And at first, like, I thought maybe he was trying to run away from the guy. And then he tries to buy a gun. And you're like, oh, no, he's going after someone. Um, he doesn't quite get the gun. He has to use a knife, but there are a few key moments in this movie and not, not even all of them involve violence. Like, um, there is one moment where, so I guess we should just explain the movie (laughs) because I'm about to reference a bunch of stuff and the people at home who haven't watched it don't know what I'm talking about. He gets a knife. He goes to this, uh, bar in the middle of nowhere, USA. Um, and there's this guy, Wade, uh, and this a seemingly homeless person, or I guess like he's technically he's legitimately homeless, um, though he doesn't need to be homeless by choice. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He waits for this Dwight. Guy. Yeah, he's he, he he's got this crazy like feral looking beard on his face for the first third of the movie, and it kind of makes him look more like dangerous. It's interesting how when he strips that off, he all he looks like a little kid underneath all of that hair. He looks really vulnerable, but. What the movie establishes, I'm sorry if I jumped over you there, is that this guy means business. The whole movie wasn't going to be a slow burn until he got revenge on this guy. He hides in the bathroom of that club, and when he sees the opportunity, he stabs that dude in the head. And, and it is brutal. <laughs> his eye gets bloodshot immediately, and there's like blood spurting out of his temple, and it looks like it sucked. And I gotta say, there's something to me... That's slightly more horrifying about the stunned shock of being attacked and and uh, and injured than when like like if he had stabbed the guy and the guy started like screaming oh no god there's so much blood like that would have that would have been more horror that yeah right but the guy just kind of like the guy tries to kill him before he's killed there's tense he gets stabbed there's there's the realization of like he doesn't look like he's in pain he just looks like he understands he's in danger and then he crumples yeah. to the floor and dies. Um, and then and it's horrifying for both of them. Yeah, right? even the murderer like that, where it looks like, hey, that murder looked like it sucked as much to be murdered as it was to murder. Yeah, nobody uh, liked that. Nobody yeah. liked what was going on there. Exactly. <laughs> you can almost imagine Dwight whispering, "Hey, this is just as bad for me." <laughs> Dwight needs to hightail it out of there. The family of uh, Wade, who got out of prison, catches on really quick what he's done. Uh, he steals a car of theirs, injures himself. Then he needs to go uh, get, start. <laughs> the movie almost repeats itself because now we're back to square one where he's like, all right, now I need to get a plan set up. Um, and so act two is him getting uh, cleaned up, getting uh, fed, uh, and then going to his sister where we, I guess we find out that, um, or we find a little earlier on, apparently Wade had killed their parents. Yeah. Um, there is a moment a little later or a little earlier from the club where he steals the car. Of the, uh, I guess it's a limo from this family, and there's someone in the back, and it's just right. Um And he like pulls over. Uh, the kid gets out. He's like, "Oh," and the kid knows immediately what's up. He's like, "Oh, did you hurt Wade?" The guy's like, "Yeah, Wade hurt my parents." And the kid's like, "I don't think he did." And we find out later on that the reason he says that is. Uh, 
because it turns out that Wade was covering for the person that actually killed um, Dwight's parents. It was Wade's, Wade's father, dad. Wade's dad. Yeah. yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later on. But the um, and my my reaction to that before I knew that information was just like it, it's infuriating. I, this is a side tangent. It is infuriating when people just choose to believe their own truth because. Right. I can imagine a situation where Wade did kill those parents and the family's just like, no, Wade's a good guy. He wouldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. And this kid's like, I don't think he killed him because my mom, his sister says that he didn't kill him and da, 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 da. It's a quick aside. That was just my gut reaction. Like, oh, man, these people are infuriated. It seems it's a little bit of like a, I was going to say a hillbilly Hatfield and McCoy, but I guess just a Hatfield and McCoy thing. These two families are at war with each other. Um, And he's been living with the death of his parents. And like you say, he's been living like a homeless vagrant. And you get the feeling like if he asked his sister or if he reached out to anybody, that wouldn't be necessary. It's like he's in this purgatory until he can figure out a way to get vengeance. And, uh, uh, whether or not it was true, I mean, the, because the guy took the hit and decided to plead guilty for the crime, he assumed he was guilty. As he finds out that the actual guilty party, you know, lived a relatively complete happy life and that this vengeance is just being vetted out on his children, I don't know if that, I don't know if that would have sort of stayed his hand because his life seemed to be on this course, this dedicated course that. He was ruined by that crime, so he was going to get his vengeance. It's like, you're, you, because we established with him, it's hard not to sympathize with him just because we're locked into his perspective. But when you objectively look at it, no, I mean, he's been, he's been sort of hardening himself and preparing himself for this, these murders. And he puts his sister in danger and, uh, you know... All of the things that play out, the good and the bad, if you can find any good. At this point, he's the instigator. Like, that crime happened years ago, <laughs> you know? It's just he was unable to heal that wound. He was he just let it fester. And um, I it's I like the, the actor, and I'm, I guess, cheering for the character. But I guess the question is, should we be? So, yeah, there's even a moment where he meets up with his sister and confesses, and she is like, well, after he puts her whole family in danger, and her response is, I would feel sad for you if you were sick, but you're not sick, you're just weak. That's um, right. And I think that, that nails it. I I have to say, though, this might be where we diverge, because I definitely agree that Dwight is the instigator, but I hate the family so much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're, just, they're, just, they're just shitbags. And there's a couple of points. This is kind of the weak spot of the movie for me. There are a couple of points where the movie tries to, like, twist the framing of things. And it starts with, oh, maybe Wade didn't kill your parents and you stabbed him for no reason. But, like, it's not for no... I mean, like, he shouldn't have stabbed him, right? That's not... Right. But Wade's dad killed his parents, both his parents, because because Dwight's father was uh, sleeping with Wade's dad... Wade Sr. He was sleeping with his wife. That's right. Um, And... That is not a good reason to kill people. <laughs> no. Like, you definitely get like get a divorce and be angry and yell and all that. But, like, and the mother, uh, Dwight's mother, was innocent in all of this. And they even go, like, yeah, that kind of, yeah, we fucked up there. We shouldn't have killed your mom. She was in the car. She yeah. was in the car. Wrong place, wrong time. But they don't care. And then immediately <laughs> yeah. when Wade died, and like, and again, like, yes, 
Dwight is the instigator. I'm not arguing that. But immediately when Wade dies, it really seems like this whole family is going to go after their whole family. And, and that's not necessary. There's a point where uh, Dwight says, hey, if I... And he's just trying to get to a amicable solution despite everything. He goes, if I give myself up, my sister and her family, they've done nothing. They can be they can be uh let go they can be safe and the rednecks are like fuck that it's getting all of you Um, yeah and and then it's confirmed a little bit later on so throughout the movie i just keep getting like the the story is trying to tell me ah there's so many sides to this but what i'm seeing is no these guys are dicks and in a movie sense i don't mind seeing them die like definitely it's if it were happening next to me i'd be horrified by all of it but in terms of like who I'm rooting for, never in my mind was I not rooting for Dwight. Yeah. No, they're incredibly horrible and incredibly shitty, and the movie captures this well. Unfortunately, where I work, I encounter bullies on a semi-regular basis, and they really do a great job of locking into that. But at one point, uh, Dwight has a, a prisoner, <laughs> and the way that guy behaves when he doesn't have the upper hand as compared to the way he behaves when he does have the upper hand is so dramatic and believable. But this weird glaze that comes over their face, like they look at this person like (laughs) it doesn't matter. This person could die today. (laughs) Well, this guy, they have a personal vendetta, but I mean, generally in the world, you or I, we could die today or we could live forever and they don't give a shit. Anything that does not pertain to their immediate needs just has no weight in the world. And uh, this this real fucking eager, hostile, like, they're not just bullies, but they know that they're bullies, and they love that they're bullies. He's fucking rebel in it. It seems like it's hit hard. It seems like maybe that the writing is too hard on it, but... These people exist. I'm sorry to, to to break this illusion for anyone out there, but there are people in the world who are every bit as awful as are being portrayed here. Some of them are the president of the United States. They're everywhere. <laughs> They're hard to avoid. <clears throat> but I don't see that captured as as well on film. Um, it's not even that they're dimensionless. I think he does it again in Green in Green Room, where these guys are awful, but they still have their layers. But their very existence is infuriating. Yeah, <laughs> like... we'll, I mean, we'll get to Green Room much later. Uh, yeah. There was another movie, not to give away the game, uh, Running Scared, that I think tried to do this and did not succeed, I would as argue, well. at all, but definitely right. not as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's... it's it's honorable. And I, getting back to what I was hinting at um, way at the beginning, now that we've kind of arced out the plot of the movie a little bit, there are moments, there are moments of violence, hence it being, you know, part of this list. Um, yeah. But there's also moments like when he and the sister are at the diner and he's saying like, oh, I've killed them. I don't know why the police aren't after me. And they, like, he has this realization of, oh shit, they didn't call the police. They're coming after us. And yeah. you worry for her children and their children end up being fine. It's all Okay. But all you need is one moment of that to believe that the children might be um, in danger. And then later on in the movie, it pays off because you don't – you're constantly worried about Dwight's safety. Because yeah. at any moment, these people could show up. The the prisoner – he doesn't betray him, obviously. He was a prisoner that was locked in a trunk for a few days. That's not great. But, you know, Dwight – every single time Dwight even attempts to – it seems weird to say build a bridge given the circumstances, but he attempts to defuse the situation several times, and yeah. they always respond with escalation. 
and yeah. you always are worried that there's like the, the violence will get Dwight before Dwight can get a handle on it. And then maybe kind of typical of a movie like this, the the violence consumes them all and they all die. And the one yeah. vaguely innocent party gets out. Um, that's it. It's interesting that Dwight is the one who's saying we got to put an end to this violence, but he was the one who I guess started this renewal of violence, <laughs> right? Um, but he does he goes from wanting his revenge to wanting the violence to stop. But by that point, the the snowball uh, is rolling downhill and gaining size and speed. You know. Well, and that's the thing. I, and I think I, as weird as this is to think about, I 100% believe that if the the, the rural Americans. <laughs> said like okay we're gonna have ourselves to sit down or or a parlay or whatever and Dwight was like okay I killed Wade even before the revelation that Wade wasn't the murderer like it, it, he said I killed Wade if you guys want to kill me and have this be done then we'll be done none, like there's none, none of us left my sister's not gonna come after you I understand yeah. you, you would imagine that he would do something like that and he would stick to it as long as he was assured of his sister's safety, but they would never go for something like this. So even though Wade is the, the or sorry, even though Dwight is the instigator, even though you know he could have let well enough be alone. I mean, if he did, we wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> That's but right. That's even right. Even though all of that, he never stops being the <laughs> the better party in this feud. He makes the mess, and then he tries to clean the mess. I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, just uh, take responsibility. I think is the difference. It's 90 minutes. It's incredibly tense. Comparatively to some of the other movies we're going to talk about, this movie's walking. It's not running. But I really... Yeah, to its strength. I really think it's worth your time. 100%. I can't imagine... I can't imagine very many people walking away from this going like, well, that was a waste. I think it works. No, No, it's a really strong movie. Good enough? Good. Joey, get rid of it. I try to live an ordinary life, but I run with a very dangerous crew. And it's my job to clean up the messes they make, no questions asked. It was all working out for me. Go wash up, those hands are scary. The way I figured it, what my family doesn't know won't hurt them. Until that night. Get down! Are you okay? The night someone took that gun. You take the ride down. I'm gonna find that gun, because I got the toughest mob in the world. I'm the law. It's not just any hot piece. Tommy used it to burn a dirty cop. If they find it, I'm dead. Calm down. You can get to it before the cops do. You got something that belongs to me. Snub nose 38. You just scored in a card game. Royal Flush put her in my pocket. 300 cold puts her in mine. The gun is on the street. The Russian mob is involved. This whole thing is about to blow up. I did not marry an evil man. And I know. It's not what I see when I look in your eyes. I love my son! Okay, so Wayne Kramer had made this movie, which I really liked, called The Cooler, starring William H. Macy, Maria Bello, and it actually got an Academy Award nomination for Alec Baldwin. In spite of this, nobody has seen the movie. Including um, me. I'm a big defender of it. It's kind of, uh, it's got a fantasy element, it's got a sort of crime element, and it's got really strong performances. But nobody saw it, and I get the feeling for his follow-up movie, he really wanted to grab people's attention. It's like, I want to make something flashy and aggressive and full of action that you just can't look away from, that's just going to hypnotize the audience. And um, I appreciate the effort. I feel like he watched, like, uh, Three Kings and saw some of the crazy flash shots that, that 
that director was doing when he was this is the damage that a bullet does or these are some crazy zip pans that's going to show the action that's about to take place he kind of took that game plan and just dialed it to 11 for running scared he also came up with a good cast but unfortunately i think he's lost the heart entirely the thing that worked the most for me in the cooler was that it in spite of its grimness in spite of you know people being used and really flawed characters doing really bad things i liked the characters and i cared about them and that is the essential ingredient missing and running scared as far as it's keeping its pedal to the metal like i I could accuse it of a lot of flaws but i would never accuse it of being boring but it is it, it becomes excessive and because i'm not as locked into the characters it turns into this 98 minute video music video thing where I can appreciate the style but I'm somehow unaffected by it and considering the level of violence and the level of danger that children are put in and like a B story with like a crazy pedophile thing that comes out of nowhere and uh, Vera Farmega far before she's super famous in a pretty raunchy little role, supporting role like there's a lot of interesting things in the movie, but do I think the movie works 100%? I don't. I don't. I want it to work. I'm cheering for it, but there's something missing. Can you, can you help me here, Eric? Yes. The something missing is that this movie is flat. It has no pulse. It goes up to 11 and then stays there. There is absolutely no variation um, I have actually a lot of, uh, maybe production qualms with this movie. Can we just get back quickly to, uh, Varda Farmiga's, uh, raunchy role? Um, yeah. at the very beginning of the movie, Paul Walker, and I don't remember his name, he's just Paul Walker, um, comes the, home, she's his wife. What's his name? Uh, sorry, the, he's our protagonist. Uh, yeah. He's, spoilers, you guys, he's an undercover cop. <laughs> <laughs> what, Paul Walker? No! <laughs> uh, yeah. Next you're going to tell me Bell, Ben Mendelsohn was the bad guy. I think, yeah, right? It, <laughs> I, I think, like, uh, well, he's centering the movie, but he's not asked to do a lot more that different than what he was in, like, the Fast and the Furious movies while he was around. Um there's a lot more gray in this than there is in the Fast and the Furious, I guess. But There's a lot of attempted gray. Okay, but getting back. So he comes home to his wife and he's all like, mm, I got the hots for you. Okay, I'm sorry if this is out of line or something. It kind of looked to me like they actually recorded Paul Walker actually licking uh, her, like actually performing orally on her. That might have <laughs> been clever editing. It looked really close though. Like I, like, I was kind of like, am I just... Watching a sex act on an actual film? It, it was surprising because like, she's been doing more and more work in the many years since this film. And we've seen her in a lot of stuff. And like, I've never seen her in that context before. And I guess I had seen this movie like back in the day, but I totally forgot she was in it. And it just surprised me. It was like, man, she really, she was really going for it in a way I haven't seen her. The, we'll, we'll come up with, like, we'll get to some other stuff later on. But this movie really, without being like, uh, you know, torture porn. This movie rides its R rating hard. Yeah. Um, there is, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, okay, well, let's a talk plot. This, it's yeah, let's talk plot. Let's talk plot if you can, bit. the plot is so dense. Yeah, well, the key thing is Paul Walker is given a gun that's used in a crime and he's supposed to get rid of it. 
He stashes it in his basement inexplicably, and he's his son and a neighbor kid discover it. The neighbor kid steals the gun, first tries to use it to kill his dad, and then in his sort of running away odyssey, it, it, be, he, it becomes sort of a convoluted, who's got the gun now? Where is it going to be? How are we going to save this kid? How are we going to reconcile this situation? So everybody's trying to get their hands on this gun and Paul Walker's trying to make sure that, you know, his kid and that little kid make it out of this terrible situation alive. On top of that, he's an undercover cop and nobody knows. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. And I think it knows it's ridiculous. And that's why everything's moving at a thousand miles an hour. I think the idea is to keep the audience so busy with action and, and, and shock that they don't have time to think about how essentially empty this movie really is. Well, and that's the thing. So I have a, a note here. I Can I just say, like, I, I detest the editing in this movie. It is so manic. And I the, we were talking before, like, the rule of film is you show, don't tell. But this movie is edited in such a way that the showing is telling. Like, the camera will zoom in on a thing so you can't fucking miss it. There'll be some weird flashes. It'll zoom back, show you another thing. It'll make sure that you don't, for a second, mistake any part of this movie as being subtle. I... Um, also kind of had a note that like, you, you know, when you first discover PowerPoint, you're like, oh, I can make all these transitions and you add a bunch of stuff. And then later, as you learn PowerPoint, you realize, ah, less don't use more. that stuff. Yeah. Less, less is, is more. more. This movie feels like someone just discovered the final cut transition tools. Like there's like just so much going on and so much wacky coloring and so much editing and so many shots of things that only need one shot and so much chaos and so much beating you over the head with the bat. Hey, don't you get this point? Understand what's going on. It's exhausting. And I think the, that's the problem is that the movie is... Um, the movie's trying to cram so much into what is ultimately a flat package. There's... Uh, I mean, we're skipping... A, I mean, I don't know if we're going to go beat by beat. But towards the end, uh, there's like just one of many crazy shootouts... Where I guess the Russian gang and the Italian gang um, that uh, Paul Walker is part of, but also he's a cop. Uh, they meet at this hockey rink, and first uh -huh. of all, like they 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 say like, "Oh, we're gonna turn on the black lights." Um, so the the rest of the scene is in this really harsh blue color for the rest of the scene, and first of all, it's just an eyesore. But on top of that, uh, there's a point where. Um, Paul Walker does some fuckery and he throws the Italian mob boss's son under the bus so the Russians shoot him. And then the Italian mob boss, for the rest of that scene, instead of shooting the two people he wants to shoot, just monologues about how I was a father and I had a son and he's that dead guy right there and that meant a lot to me. Don't you see I'm a character with depth? Don't you get it? Ah, all of this violence affects everyone. And, like, Paul Walker's sitting there surviving, even though he should have been shot the second that guy had a gun. Yeah. The, like, there's just, they're just hanging out, listening to this guy go on and on about how much depth he fucking has. The, I, and, and that's just, like, I would say that's a microcosm of the movie. There's two things about that hockey scene. A, it's, it seems like a, a a scene that should be in like a, a gritty Canadian thriller where they use the implements of hockey to torture yeah. dude. But uh, like Jay the, and Silent Bob. Yeah, the black light though uh, saved them an NC-17 rating uh, because the blood came off black and not red under the light. Uh, that's how specific the rules were as far as the MPA. That is insane. I, I mean, speaking of the rating again, I have another note here, which is that 
This might be the first time I've seen a fully naked woman in a strip club in a movie. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a part where they cut to the strip club, and the first shot is just of a vagina, an actual lady's vagina, and it's like <laughs> I that doesn't bother me, but it is stunning because I've literally never seen that before in a film in in a strip cl- uh, club uh, context. They're always in like a thong, and then if the movie wants to be tasteful they have pasties and if they're really edgy they have bared breasts but i've never just seen a fully nude woman in a strip club in a movie before and, <laughs> and again it, it's it, an establishing shot we've seen a thousand times enter sleazy strip club and yeah we'll either see a girl dancing in something slinky or her tits will be out as often as not but uh, this movie had to take it the extra mile. They just wanted to be shocking. But I felt that calculated effort. I think that might be part of the reason that I'm like yeah. resistant to it. Like, you really want to shock me. You, I, I feel the mechanics of the, the filmmaker. This is what he's trying to do. This is how he's trying to keep me busy. And I should be so swept up in the story and the characters that I, I don't have time to think about it. But I do. I do. And that sort of jams up the works. I wouldn't give up on Wayne Kramer. I just think... I feel like The Cooler wasn't as big a movie as it should have been, and he thought that it was his fault. <laughs> and I think that I think that The Cooler was a really good movie. It just struggled to find its audience, like a lot of movies do. I can I can be incredibly sympathetic to that. And this was him really trying to give the audience what he thought they wanted. This is a weird thing to connect to, but Glenn Morgan, this guy who used to work on X Files and Millennium, who tried to make himself into a genre filmmaker. He did this remake of Willard, and it didn't do very well, even though it was a decent movie. So the next movie he did, which was a remake of Black Christmas, he tried so hard to give the genre people what he thought they wanted instead of making the movie that he wanted to make. And he made a much worse movie and hasn't made another movie since. And I worry that that will be the fate for Wayne Kramer. Apparently well, he, he did a, a, a Harrison Ford movie called Crossing Over, which I've never hear, heard of, but... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I really like The Cooler, and I'm just... I want to like Running Scared. I just can't. <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, like, I have notes about specific scenes. And that's that's just it. I feel like sometimes, on Rankin Review, I can come across as overly harsh towards low-budget movies, right. and that's not because... I, I think it's the reason is that I am comparatively less endeared to low budget movies because I've seen low budget movies that are utterly fantastic film. Um, just because you don't have a lot of budget doesn't mean you have to come across as cheap. I mean, uh, Blue Ruin was made yeah. for half a million dollars and like that's peanuts in uh, filmmaking sense. Following Christopher Nolan's first movie, one of my favorite movies of all time, not like my favorite movie, but like top 25 probably, it was made for $3,000. Yeah. You have no excuse. That being said, this movie had budget to spare, and it, like it almost felt like it, it felt the need to spend all of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, uh, apparently, mostly on the editor's wage. But there's there's some crazy like there's that set with the I, I don't know if they're pedophiles or what, but there's these people that capture kids, which comes out of nowhere. Like it's just this coincidence that this kid who shot the gun is running away from his dad. And he goes into the back of a van. <laughs> it's the back of a van of people who pick up kids. How about that? Yeah. So then they take him. And they make movies with these kids. That's certain. I'm not sure what the nature of the movies is. It seems like they might be snuff films. 
It's the um, nature of them where they have to kill the kid after they make the film. So I whatever think it's a it, pretty safe assumption. Yeah. And like that, first of all, that set is crazy. It feels like something out of Willy Wonka. Like it's, it's, I don't understand like the logistics of that apartment, of that set fitting in what is supposed to be that apartment. Um, but eventually like the kid calls for help and, um, uh, Mega shows up. Yeah. She, she shows up. And she takes way too long to kill these people. <laughs> like, like it is. First of all, it's not a cool thing. Like, you just walk into this apartment and it's cold and sterile, and it just looks like it's haunted in some way. Like you're gonna turn your back and you're actually in the Overlook Hotel or something. Yeah. And like, and then they're like, "Oh, we just have these kids. They're sleeping." And she's like, "Okay." And then she starts to walk away, and then she's like, "Wait a second. There's no pictures anywhere," which I think is not. A crime. I don't have very many pictures. They're all on my phone. But this was 2006. It was a different time. So she goes in and she looks a little harder. And she finds she fucking finds the kid that shot the gun. He's wrapped in plastic and suffocating. Yeah. And she frees him. And she's like, like she's upset for sure. But she's way too chill about it because she like she like frees him and she's like, you guys stay back or I'm gonna call the cops. This is fucked up. I'm like, no, dude, you caught them trying to kill a kid. What are you going to... And then, like, the the, plot, the scene stretches on for, like, five minutes. And then she it's... finds DVDs of these other kids that have ostensibly been killed. And you're, I'm sitting there looking like, why was this the turning point? Like, if I found a child, like, after making sure the child was alive and safe, I would murder those people. It's also a huge detour of the movie. Yeah. The movie stops for this. And, like... It... I, I'm, I'm torn about it because, like, it's a memorable moment of the movie. It's a really strong moment for Vera Farmiga's character, if not, like, how it's executed. The fact that she was willing to do that makes her pretty crazy and badass. But what's it doing here? I almost what's feel like it, it should have been its own movie. Right. Like, you could imagine, like, almost, almost like Prisoners? Almost. Like, a really dark thriller that surrounds this lady trying to find her uh, it could be her kid or whatever like you could just you could see you could turn this into a real comfortable three act like she gets close she misses some clues she gets in she almost leaves like that's that all feels right but like you said it's disrupting this otherwise really frenetic uh plot that's already all over the place like even without the scene even if you cut out the scene and somehow just made the movie like half an hour shorter which it would have benefited from it's still chaotic and dense Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's, uh, like, I don't... Uh, yeah, that's just yeah. it. Like, I don't... <laughs> the, movie, the movie just so clearly bites off more than it can chew. Um, and it tries so hard to be layered and give the characters depth and have twists. But it's like, I think you nailed it. It's, it tries so hard to do this that it's obvious and it doesn't feel... There's no authenticity to it. Yeah. And so it's just kind of a slog to watch. Uh, and, uh, yeah. On occasion, I've been give, uh, asked to give advice to people about writing scripts and stuff like that, and especially with young writers, because something that I was really guilty of, um, especially in this era, like in the first 10 or 15 years after Pulp Fiction, pretty much every screenwriter I would give this note to, fuck edit. Go through your script, look at all the uses of the word fuck, and try to cut it at least in half. <laughs> not, yeah. not because it's inauthentic, because it genuinely gets boring to listen to after a while. Yeah. It, the, all of the power is taken out of it, and it just becomes a vulgar movie. And I'm not easily offended, but I was, it just <laughs> it felt kind of lazy that every fucking fuck was fuckity fuckity fuck this and fuck you and fuckity fucking you. And that somehow made them bad and tough, and the fact that they spoke that way. And I don't know. Uh, 
Quentin Tarantino has done a lot of good things for film, but he's also, also, there's been some blowback. So if this sounds like something that you might be interested in, like it's trying really hard to entertain. And I know a lot of people do like it. Uh, I want it to be better than it is. But for me in this list, it's not going to rank very high. Yeah, we're all on the same page on that. (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll need a plan. I got this. This doesn't seem like a well-thought-out plan. I need your permission to operate independently. Permission granted! Thank you. Stay down, man. Spam, he's got a knife! I see that. We have a knife, too. You now have full control again, Gray. If you are involved in this somehow, then you need to let me know. Well, I was in the area, detective. There's a gun implanted inside his head. Then what do you think I should do? Move, Gray. Whoa, 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 whoa! Man, you are persistent. I cannot allow us to be killed. We are going to finish the job we started. So once upon a time, I was on the podcast, The Terror Table, and I said to the, the, guest, the host there that the zombie first-person perspective movie wreck was the movie that doom should have been and that this movie upgrade was the movie that venom should have been discuss <laughs> we have this well, what's there to discuss you yeah. know that. like that's it that's it that's exactly uh, it this movie understood that the fun part of uh, venom was the buddy cop stuff and it took that and did more with it this main character played by logan marshall green is uh brutalized there's a brutal car accident his girlfriend is killed he is paralyzed and he is given this tech i don't know it's like uh artificial intelligence crossed with nanotechnology crossed with whatever sci-fi stuff you want that will be injected in him that will make him able to move but that this independent thing is sort of got its own consciousness and that he has a relationship with it and uh, who's in control and how the, that power struggle works is going to be uh, the main problem that he's dealing with amongst all of the other, you know, extenuating circumstances. There's the people, real bad guys that are out to do him harm, and that there's this internal conflict that he's having. I think the movie is very impressively mounted. It, it has some of the freshest and more brutal action fight sequences that I've seen. If I have a, a flaw in the movie, and that's if we can discuss, is that I think they're going for a real gotcha ending at the end of this movie. And if there's one thing I would say about Upgrade, and I'm going to be largely positive about it, is that I saw that ending coming a good mile ahead of it. And I, I kind of resent when a movie thinks that it's, it's smarter than its audience, especially when it's not. But for all of its technical, you know, execution, it's a low-budget movie set in the future. It looks good. It's got compelling bad guys. You really want, you know, things to work out for Logan and, uh, or sorry, Gray Trace, I guess is his character's name. Um, 
I'm in it the whole time. I just think that the movie might be slightly less smart than it thinks it is. But this is a quibble. This is a quibble. I'm mostly on side. What do you think of Upgrade? I So, first of all, um, I actually watched Upgrade in Green Room months ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I watched the rest of these last week. Uh, so... Those ones are both much hazier in my mind. And I have a note here that says, good job for not taking the safe ending at least. But I don't actually remember what the ending is. (laughs) I remember that, like, the AI was the mastermind behind everything, of course. But I don't remember what the last moments were. Uh, Basically, the AI gives him the opportunity to escape into his own brain, into a fantasy where none of this happened to him and he's still with his girlfriend. And given that opportunity, he takes it because everything else is awful. And the AI, once under control, has complete uh, complete control over his body and his actions and becomes a cold-blooded murderer. He executes a cop, an innocent cop in that scene. And basically, he walks out of that room and he's no longer gray. He's now whatever that high tech. He's like a, a hybrid of, you know, the sci-fi tech and uh, just wearing a suit of a human being. He's lost yes. he's lost everything but in his own mind. It's it's kind of like a an action version of Brazil where the the main character is put through so much trauma that their their escape becomes internal. They they go mad but they're happier in their madness than they could have ever been with the world that's in front of them. I in general I like upgrade I, uh, it's one of my favorite actual depictions of the future because I think that it, part of being a, uh, having a generally lower budget is that you kind of have to just amend what we have now, which is how the future is going to be. If you ever look at transitionary periods, there are very few jumps like, let's say, from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. Usually it's stuff like from the 60s to today, the world is very different. But if you were to walk down a street, like the cars kind of change shape, but we still have the same light posts and the house designs are the same. And some of the houses are exactly the same. Um, it's that kind of a thing. And I think this leans into that in a satisfying way. Um, this is a quick aside. I do not like the fear mongering that future movies, like sci-fi movies always have about self-driving cars. It drives me nuts. I just, it, you you were talking about the ending making you upset. I was like, oh man, of course the self-driving car got hacked. Of course it did. I signed uh, me up like for the so, self-driving cars. I don't, I don't right? drive, but we're I'm all about I it. I actually, I actually took a self-driving car uh, when Ashley and I went to Vegas uh, this last summer. They had them there uh, through Lyft and it like, yeah, exactly. Like, so we're so close to an actual future tech and like, I'm. I'm so hard about self-driving cars. Like we, I want cars that literally don't come with steering wheels. Like that's what we need. And I think we're like 10 years away from that. And damn, if these sci-fi movies aren't just going to fear monger it up about that and upgrade plays its part. I, I liked this movie a lot. I think Tom Hardy did a really good job. Uh, it's really clear throughout the movie that he's acting differently with his head That's, than he is with his it's body. It's Logan Marshall Green is the actor. It's not Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy was Venom. <laughs> no, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy's the actor in this. Logan. Logan Marshall's the director, isn't nope, he? That's Gray Trace. That's our main character. Tom Hardy is in Venom. I, I started talking about it. Or, or no. No, Upgrade has Tom Hardy. I... No, I I'm, I'm gonna... looking at IMDb. Logan Marshall Green plays Gray Trace. 
That can't be right because Benedict Cardo plays clearly fist. it's Tom Hardy. I, I I don't see Tom Hardy listed here. Anyway, maybe I'm maybe maybe I'm wrong. I don't see it though. But did he do it uncredited? What? This can all be edited. I... You're right. That like <laughs> that is not. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? He looks so much like Tom Hardy in this yeah. movie. But that can't. You know what? I I'm gonna I'm gonna do over. Um, do over. <laughs> head no no. My head cannon is that it's Tom okay. Hardy. But what you were going <laughs> to That is insane. That is insane. What you were going to say is absolutely true though. When he gives the AI permission to take over his physicality when his life's in danger and all of a sudden he becomes a super fighter, the acting is so good cuz he's physically carrying out this crazy fight sequence. But his face is like, "What the fuck? This is crazy. Like, how am I doing this?" Like there's two performances happening simultaneously, and both of them are difficult. One of them would be a highly choreographed fight, and the other one is this sort of awe on your own face at what your arms and, and your legs are doing. And, like, he doesn't just punch a guy out. He'll rip a guy's jaw off his face, right? Yeah. It's, it's brutal. And effectively. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't look like he struggles either. Like, he just, like a robot. Yeah. Um, I'm still a little blown away that he's not Tom Hardy, I'll be honest, because I, I legitimately throughout this whole movie thought it was Tom Hardy. I'm sorry to, to, to blow that up on you. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. But he does do it. He does such a good He's great. Yeah. He's great. Um, and it's it was really hard for me not to think of Venom, actually, when I was signing it, because I was kind of let down. I was yeah. let down by Venom. Because I thought it was the same right? actor. <laughs> no, uh, but I think the relationship that happens, the give and take uh, between this character and his invader and... and Tom Hardy and Ben. It's better done here. Lee Whannell is much more known for his horror movies. He wrote Saw. He wrote um, uh, about well some of the I think the he wrote Saw the, the yeah. third Insidious movie. He's doing this new Invisible Man. Um, he he's been contributing to the horror genre fairly effectively for a lot of years. And this one is a little you know step to a different direction and. I think he did it well, and obviously some of the horror roots followed him into this sci-fi action piece. I, would, I certainly wouldn't tell anybody not, not to watch it. it. It's one of these impossibly grim movies. I think that's why the ending was so obvious to me. Like Everything that happened was so awesome. And this, this bad guy that they have in here, Fisk, I'll try and find the name of the actor, um, Benedict Hardy. He's got this weird, like, mustache, and he's, like, super dressed all super slick. Um, there's something so hard and evil about them. Like, 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 it's it's like we were talking about with Blue Ruin. Like, this is a guy that has fun being yeah. the bad guy. Oh, you mean I get to kill a girl and paralyze a guy? Sweet. My day is made. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. And you'll pay me to do it? <laughs> um, here's what I don't want to see, though. Don't sequelize this movie. I mean, I know it's got a lot of occult audience around it, and people are, are like excited by Upgrade, and people are actually really into seeing this Invisible Man based on the strength of the cult following that Upgrade has. But uh, and that's fine. I mean, let's see what William and L can can bring to us next go round. But I'm getting to the point where if you make a completely solid, self-contained, working thriller. Leave it the fuck alone if you can. <laughs> like, if you need to do, if you need to, if you need to play off of the strengths of Upgrade, do a spiritual successor. Don't do a literal sequel. Yeah, set it in the same world, but like, yeah, I don't know. 
I, I think that he's upped his game both as a writer and as a director. I mean, I, I might not love it as much as everybody else. It's, it's some people are completely like cheerleading this movie as like this is. It's not that great. <laughs> it is good. Like, like, like I said, I, I think we definitely diverge on the end because I think that. And again, I'm mostly just going off of my notes because it's been a while since I've seen it and a lot has happened in the last few months. But I remember being very worried towards the end that it was going to be very safe and he was going to do something like, even if like he killed himself to stop the AI or something like that. And I think that would have been much more of a, oh yeah, you went there. Not every, like, I mean, here's the thing. Not every movie is going to be able to surprise you every time. And I don't think that it, I think that any director who actively tries to have twists and turns, you end up with running scared where you're like, Oh, he was a cop. Oh, and either it doesn't land or it's too obvious because not only have we seen all of the movie, like we've seen all of the stories at this point, but we've also seen all of the twists on all the stories. So obvious twists don't work very well. And like you're saying, this was obvious to you, but I think this also was a natural ending kind of not like it was an earned ending let's say it didn't spoil Um, the meal for me it wasn't like oh fuck this movie it was just like of course of course but like it has to end like 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 to me the fact that um stem is the name of this upgrade ai that the fact that stem was behind everything to me that was a little bit more like ah fuck you (laughs) than than the actual end where he got to be in paradise forever. I think that's fine. It's just this grim, dour, dark age we're in. Like, the most popular TV shows are The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones and, like, everything. How is The Walking Dead still going on? Because despite everybody saying it sucks, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. I'm sorry. I know it's popular to shit on The Walking Dead, but uh, I'm sorry. I just just flatly disagree. Anyway. I've stopped watching it a long time ago. That's the attitude everyone has. They've stopped watching it, ergo it sucks. It doesn't. The point is, I'm a zombie guy, so I, I'm going to defend The Walking Dead. So, the point I was so for the seventh movie on this list, The Walking yeah. Dead. Uh, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is the, the the dourness with which everything is being treated. Everybody's expecting the harshest possible storylines, and and uh, heroism, you know, very rarely you know is rewarded anymore. We're just in this phase where everything's got to be so fucking dark all the time that. It would have been more surprising to me that this movie had a happy like if if he somehow found a way to work with STEM or remove STEM and like there was a happy ending, I would have my jaw would have been on the floor. Like, like <laughs> there was no fucking way this was gonna have a happy ending. And when you go into it knowing that there's no fucking way this is gonna have a happy ending, I think that sort of you can still have fun with the movie, but it makes the whole experience kind of inevitable. I had a point, and I've since forgotten. I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry. To me, to me, like the difference. No, no, but like having a like to me, it's not happy ending versus not happy ending. To me, um, it's kind of like playing within your own rules effectively. And I think that like, I think that uh, the idea of like, oh, this is definitely going to have a sad ending. Like t- uh, that doesn't negate the sad ending or the dour ending being less satisfying or more satisfying to me. That's yeah, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> I mostly like Upgrade. I think that uh, some people are a little bit hyperbolic about it, but I think it's doing successfully what Running Scared was doing unsuccessfully. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's trying to keep you a- a- excited and energized and into this pretty convoluted crazy when you kind of look at it story. But it's good at keeping things moving fast enough that, that we don't get lost in it. I-, I sound like I'm coming off shitty on the movie. I do like the movie. I just... I think it's less of a game changer than some people are implying. That's all. 
Yeah, 100%. It's, I mean, it is also fun that we're getting some mid-tier budget movies, because I feel like either you're an indie movie or you're the Star Wars. Right. Yeah. Two mi- Nowadays, and it's, it's either yeah. a $2 million project or it's a $200 million project, right? Yeah, where, where are my boys the $20 million yeah, projects? Let's, let's try that. Um, I wouldn't tell anyone not to watch Upgrade, so... Yeah, I think it's fine. From director Stuart Gordon. The Master of the Macabre. You know, it's really, really scary what a single blow to the head can do. (laughs) He was just the man they were looking for. Um, Sean Crawley. Someone to do their dirty work. I want you in this guy's jock, morning, noon, and night. No matter how dirty it got. Sometimes, you gotta be a little bit ruthless. Something gets in your way, you eliminate it. And when they were done with him, they thought they could make him disappear. But there's something they didn't know about Sean Crawley. Who are you? Now! Now! I am the ants, you fuckers! Do you hear me? And you're all dead. Uh, so Stuart Gordon is the director of this really fucked movie called King of King of the Ants. I've talked about him several times on the podcast before. He's a fiercely independent filmmaker in that like he will make movies for a micro budget, not because that's the best way to tell the story he's trying to tell, but because that's the only way he can tell it the way he wants to tell it. When you watch a Stuart Gordon film, you're going to be guaranteed that you're going to see some stuff that you haven't seen before, and in a lot of cases, stuff that maybe you didn't want to see before. There's a, a quality to his movies that you cannot unsee them. King of the Ants is probably one of my least favorites of Stuart Gordon's films. I'm going to sort of come out with that. But I also have to say that I do have a, a measure of respect for the guy. I don't think he came up with the most awesome cast here, and I think that drops the movie a full letter grade. And just the ugliness of the subject matter and the grimness of this this story, this kid who's you know painting houses gets sort of talked into committing a murder by these thugs, and then surprise, surprise, the thugs fuck him over. But he's collected evidence, so they can't get rid of him until they figure out where this evidence is. And since he's unwilling to give it up, they decide to kidnap him, torture him, and basically try to destroy him. Just batter his skull and, like, wreck his brain so he doesn't know who he is or what up is down, and so that he is in no position to incriminate them. And it goes on and on and on. Uh, It's got your typical graphic violence and sex, which you can expect from Stuart Gordon. And it's got some weird casting. It's George Wendt playing Norm from Cheers, playing a super badass gangster dude. Just strange casting there. Uh, And generally speaking, if your cast overall is so meh, 
that the standout performance is given by Daniel Baldwin, <laughs> there's a problem. There's probably a problem there. That said, for all the shitty things I'm saying, there is something strangely ambitious and edgy about the movie. I just can't get myself around to the point where I could recommend it to anybody. I just I can't think of the person who would say, would say you would really like King of the Ants. <laughs> it's more of like an experience that you're put through than something you enjoy. It just fits in that weird crazy corner of Stuart Gordon, much like his Castle Freak or some of his other really ugly works. You can't necessarily look away from it. You don't necessarily hate it, but it's really hard to say you like it. So this is the muddy water I find myself in with The King of the Ants. This movie... I do not think this movie knows what it is. I think part of the problem is that it feels like it switches tones like four or five times throughout the film. Um, the uh, First of all, I just want to say that we start with uh, this guy, Sean Corrali. Does, what, what a loser. Doesn't even have a car. His bike is way too small for him. And that is something I noticed right away. <laughs> I, uh, and it just distracted me for the rest of the movie. And there's a moment later on where he gets a different bike, a newer bike, and it's also too small for him. And he has the seat down too low. Um, but in actuality, like it's, I actually started charmed by this movie. Like within the first 10 minutes, I was kind of like, okay, all right. This is, uh, I was talking before about me being harsh on lower budgets. Like, ah, this is a lower budget movie that's, that's trying to work within its constraints. And then it loses that trail pretty quickly. Uh, the, um, it, it's hard. It's almost like, it's almost like running scared on the other side of the spectrum where in theory all of the pieces are there and it's and like even hearing you describe it like you just descri- like you describe the things that happened in the movie but hearing your description i get the impression that it's a better movie than it is um it's i right. honestly you know what i think that this movie would have uh been much stronger if they cut out all of the love stuff and the sex stuff um I, uh, there's this weird, so this guy, uh, Sean Crawley is the main character. He's hired by some thugs for some real low stakes tailing. And first of all, I have to say, if anyone ever wanted to tail me, I hope that they hire Sean Crawley, which I guess it turns out was the point later on, because (laughs) like, it would be scary being tailed by someone who knew what they were doing. Yeah, our main character is not the sharpest tool in the drawer, which I guess is kind of interesting. A lot of the times our, your protagonist seems to be have everything figured out more before the audience does. This guy's not smart, and he's easily manipulated, and he kind of falls into a scenario where he's able to get himself, you know, uh, some leverage. But there are weird things that still don't make sense to me. Unless I missed it, his buddy who worked at the, the, the pound or whatever who shows up at the exact right time to rescue him. How did he know what, what how did he, he get said that there? he tailed them. <laughs> like, he said that he tailed the bad guys. So the bad guys go back for some beer and he already knows that he's looking out for these guys. Um, and then they come back right. to the ranch and his pound buddy followed them on the highway to the them. ranch. He follows them. Uh, yeah. He says that it's just the way, it's but just it the way matter, he shows like, up, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's a, like it's, and then like him showing up and saving Sean Crawley, just takes this movie into a third weird direction. So, like, the first third of the movie is Sean Crawley. Like, if you end it right at the murder, that's, like, a kind of almost a three-act structure. And it, act, I've previously praised Christopher yeah. Nolan for doing this. Yeah, like, act one, like having your acts be separate stories enough that 
you can kind of extend a movie out. This movie kind of does the same thing, except that it doesn't work at all for me. Um, so that, and yeah. I will say, so anyway, he's telling this accountant, I guess, um, who's doing some audit for some guy. And uh, he, he does the thing really early on in the movie where he's like, he's like fixing his bike and he looks across and he sees the accountant's wife and they make eye contact and they do the movie thing where, ah, they've stared at each other for like three seconds. They're going to become love interests. There's no way, there's no avoiding it now. It's, it's done. <laughs> um, and uh, later on, the um, Baldwin gets him to kill the accountant. And I'm going to say, we were talking about, uh, this is the only time I'm going to compare this to Blue Ruin. We were talking about the murders looking like okay. they suck. This murder looked like it sucked for everyone. Yeah. Like it, it, oh, it yeah. fucking sucked. Ron Livingston, Ron Livingston plays that the murder victim, and uh, he was the lead in Office Space. He's been in a lot of other things. I liked him in Band of Brothers. I think he's probably the best actor that they got in the movie, and unfortunately, he's dead twenty minutes into it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that murder, that murder is brutal. And that's the thing you can count on with Stuart Gordon. There'll be a few scenes that make you go, Jesus. The most, and that is definitely true here. The most I was uh, grossed out at a scene was in this movie, uh, which was the nightmare scene a little bit later on. Um, so, yeah, he kills mm-hmm. the guy, and it turns out that the henchman never expected him to actually do it, which is funny because I didn't expect him to do it. Also, hold up. Let's back up a second. He's meeting with Baldwin in, uh, like, uh, in the car. Uh, it's Daniel, right? Daniel Baldwin? Um, yeah, yeah. He meets with him in the car. Daniel Baldwin's drunk. Uh, I guess his character's name is Ray. So Ray's like, "Hey, how much you? Uh, what would it, what would it take for you to just bump a guy off?" And Sean Crawley is like, "Uh, I'd have to do what's right. I'd have to make sure I didn't get caught. I'd have to be motivated." And the guy's like, "Motivated? Like, yeah, like money? Like how much?" And I'm like, "I don't know how much." And then he goes. Five grand, and let me tell you right now, I would fucking laugh in your face if you asked me to kill a guy for five grand, regardless of the circumstance. I, I was talking about before in Running Scared, where there were the pedophile snuff filmmaker people. If I was in that position and I had freed the kid and I was about to kill him, and then someone walked in and was like, "Kill them," I'll give you five grand. I'll be like, "Well, now I can't kill them. Like that—that's just an insult to my dignity." Five grand, and then yeah. and then Sean Crawley counters with, "How about fifteen grand?" And then. That is orders of magnitude off from, like, what I think a contract killing is. Like, I think you're looking at at least hundreds of thousands. Who the fuck is, like, the hundred like grand assassin? Think, like, a, if you're approaching somebody cold out of nowhere, like, you don't even know, like, their moral compass. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to think most people wouldn't kill somebody for the wide world. Yeah, <laughs> but right. But lowballing it. You're correct. But, like, if you're a high... Uh, here's like, a question you, I have, because... There's a question that I have because I don't know that the movie is successful for me. This whole King of the Ants theme that he gets to at the end when he's taking his revenge and uh, saying, like, nothing that happens matters and killing you guys doesn't matter and I can be... If nothing we do matters, I'll be the king of this anthill where nothing matters and I can do whatever I want. Do you think that's essentially who that character was? Or do you think that between getting his brain battered and this violent odyssey that he was on, he's become that? Because I don't know if it's a weakness in the performance or the script, but I didn't, I couldn't, couldn't track it. Did he change, or was that just who he was? I think the movie wants us to think that he changed, but this is the problem with it being so disjointed and so segmented, is that by the end of this... So, like, the third act is he kills the guy, or the first act is he kills the guy, then the second act is he gets captured by the goons, 
And for some reason, instead of killing him, they decide it's better to just continually hit his head every day. It's really weird, and it well, serves no purpose. If anything happens to him, if he dies, the evidence will get released. This it's, is it's another. Like he's got this is another him. point of Sean Crawley being a dumbass. Because if I was in that chair, I'd be like, if I die, and also if I don't get into contact with my guy in two days, like. It's yeah. just like, hey, there's someone who knows again, to release not... it to the knows to release it to the press if I'm not back in a certain amount of time. Give me fifteen grand and let me be gone. It's interesting because he's not a super smart character, which is kind of interesting. There's a few thrillers that are like this, the Joseph Gordon Levitt movie, The Lookout or yes. After Dark My Sleep. Oh, the lookout's so good. Patrick, where we have where they have the central character who is not on the ball all of the time and there's a reason why, but like that that sort of becomes an interesting part of the character is like we can't quite predict what he's going to do because he's not easily predictable. He's not going to do the most obviously right thing to help himself in a given circumstance, perhaps. And that could be interesting. I just I don't think they close the deal on it here. And I, again, I'm not sure if it's the script or the actor. I'm guessing it might be a little bit of both. I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> I because like I, I yeah. It has. It has the, the sort of shocking nature that, that Stuart Gordon's films bring. And if you're a fan of Stuart Gordon, I would probably say check it out because there are those indelible images. <laughs> the naked woman with a penis for some reason. That was that, that wasn't that crazy disturbing ant. to me. Um <laughs> like But you weren't expect Hi Ashley. <laughs> it was but you, you certainly weren't expecting to see that in, in this or any movie, right? Right. I uh, I mean yeah. I do have it a It would note only be a Stuart Gordon on. movie that brings you that. Yeah. I do have a note earlier on where um when he's first captured before he gets hit in the head the first time and he's like just locked in a shed and he's masturbating. And there's this crazy gratuitous scene where we're seeing him picture himself with the um with uh, the guys, yeah, Carrie Werher, the the yeah, wife, the, the wife character, yeah. and it's uh, like I have in my note, like, oh. Uh, Sean might never end up with Susan, but that actor did get to roll around naked with that actress, and no one can ever take that away from him. Except that he does end up, and we'll get to the third act, I guess, at some point. He does end up with the, the, the wife at one point. It's crazy. Like, that's... Yeah, I think and if that's... You, if you remove that stuff... That's the area yeah. of the movie where... Yeah, it falls apart there for me. I don't believe that relationship, and I don't believe that fight that they have that results in <laughs> where, you, where like, he shoves her elbow ex- slightly hard against the wall and she just crumples up dead. <laughs> it doesn't even look like enough to knock her down, let alone out, let alone kill her. The execution of that is appallingly bad. Like, it's embarrassing. And it should be a huge moment in the movie. It's like it's it's the moment in, in uh, of Mice and Men where Lenny accidentally kills the girl in the barn, where exactly. everything goes to shit afterwards. It's a key moment in the movie, and it fucking sucks. It, it's not sucks. executed also, convincingly. But yeah, she eventually finds out that he kills her. So like. He gets hit in the head by these guys, eventually he gets rescued. I will give this movie props. There is a nightmare he has, which is grotesque, and I don't even want to describe it. It is so gross. Um, <laughs> but I will. No, I can't. Um, <laughs> and then, like, he gets hit in the head, and he looks like uh, um, the character from the Goonies, like the Chunk? Yeah. He, like, he, Chunk. Yeah, he looks grotesque. He has prosthetics coming out. Like it's just, he has a big lump on his head. I'm not sure how he's not supposed to die after that. Um, 
And uh, he gets rescued by his friend, and then he goes to the homeless shelter where the wife works. Three weeks later, he's fine for some reason. Um, I don't understand why he was so incessant on not going to a hospital. Just say that you're John Doe and whatever. Um, and, like, he quickly, like, really quickly, he recovers from his injuries, and he seems to regain his mental facilities uh, really, like, right away. Like, he's just a guy, and, like, he's slightly changed by his experience, slightly, but I... I, I can't really put a bead on why that character transition happens or when. Um, and eventually... He seems unmoved. He seems unmoved by everything that happens until that woman dies. And then it's like, okay, now I'm going to kill everybody. But he doesn't do that hands, well, which is crazy because he... he like, at all. He does, there's this thing, and I think it's semi-clever, where he calls up the guys. He's like, hey, let's finish this. And they're like, okay, you want to meet up? He's like, yeah. But not somewhere public, somewhere out of the way. And he goes, how about the ranch? And he goes, okay, yeah, I could be there in a little while. But he's already at the ranch, which I think is clever. Except he doesn't do anything with his lead. <laughs> like, he just kind of is like, well, I guess it'll take them an hour. I'll bum around and just hang out. Like, I expected those guys to come into some full-on Home Alone shit. Like, they walk in and then the doors get closed behind them. And But, like, he might as well. Like, <laughs> he could have met them anywhere for all the planning he did. And by that point, I'm out of the movie. Yeah. I like. Uh, I think that the the death of the Carrie Wurr character was the moment where I just threw my hands up and said, "Oh, that's unfortunate. This is not good Stuart Gordon movie." And I don't bump into those that often. Generally speaking, I do like this guy. His movies do have this really lo-fi quality to them, like. He doesn't have all the bells and whistles because he can't, but he tries to make the movie his anyway, and I, I, I have respect I think for that, him. But I can't take him over the line here. I just can't I can't bring it over the line for That's the most Man. disheartening part for me, is that I think they're doing okay stuff with their low budget. Like, I mean, the, there was one scene yeah. that they had some prosthetics that I maybe would have cut, but uh, the, uh, like the, the nightmare scene was a little much... But in general, like, they're editing in interesting ways. They're, like, playing up. Oh, uh, we did a while ago uh, some guy who kills people that has a similar uh, a, a similar constraint, true, yeah. right? Um, and I think both of these movies, in terms of production value, work within those constraints just fine. It's clearly the script, and I unfortunately... I do think it's something to do with the actor, because his lack of charisma kind of just comes through on the screen. I feel like I know exactly what kind of person this actor is and i think that he maybe has trouble acting outside of his own personality i would have been very forgiving of a lot of flaws because i understand that they were working over a lot of obstacles and that it's not easy to make a movie but i agree i i, I think without locking into that main character without feeling whether or not it's an arc whether you, you have to convince yourself it's yeah. an arc instead of just witnessing it that's a fail so i can't recommend yeah. it sorry kids Good enough. We're done. Every once in a while, I see a man in that chair who could just as easily be on this side of the table. That muscle's just for show. Helps me lift stuff. Man principle. Relinquish it now. You know the difference between right or wrong. And you have a moral compass. I knew before you told me that you got an American flag in your home, you probably got more than one. 
Brawl in Cell Block 99 from writer-director uh, S. Craig Zoller. You and I spoke about Bone Tomahawk several episodes back, and I'm a huge fan of Bone Tomahawk. I remain a huge fan of Bone Tomahawk. If I'm honest, I still think it's the best of his movies that I've seen. But Brawl in Cell Block 99 has certainly got a lot of interesting qualities. I did not necessarily see this coming from Vince Vaughn, although he has done this tough guy role before. I think he's upped his game to the next level. Like, he's a very threatening physical presence in this movie, and all of the sort of goofy, I talk too much, I'm, but I'm lovable sort of comedy routine that I'm so tired of seeing in him is completely gone here. So I got to give a lot of points to Vince Vaughn because... I believe that he is threatening, and the violence that he that he dishes out in this movie is crazy over the top, so we have to believe he's capable of it, and I believe that he is capable of it. So, uh, really impressed with Vince Vaughn and uh, just the visceral, violent, kind of oh-my-God quality of the movie. Whereas Bone Tomahawk, for all of its craziness, felt palpably real to me, Brawl in Cell Block 99 is an utter fantasy. Like, there's nothing credible about this world to me. That's not a bad thing, necessarily, because it's consistent to its own world. Yeah. But I think a lot of people might watch this movie thinking that this is, like, some authentic thing. Like, this is a real hard prison movie. And I don't think it's that at all. I think it's a violent fantasy. And uh, an entertaining one, a well-executed one, a very grim one as you would be expected from the director of bone tomahawk uh but it's it, it has that measured quality we talked about blue ruin taking its time but just having these explosive moments of violence well if we can say that about blue ruin this is brawl in cell block 99 takes that idea and just amps it up <laughs> like the slow is slower and the explosive is so much more explosive yeah it's two hours and 15 minutes long, and you can tell it's a kind of a grueling, long, heavy, brutal experience, but I endorse it. <laughs> like, you might not feel good after you watch Brawl in Cell Block 99, but I think it'll stick with you, and I think it's really good at being what it is, which is a brutal, violent fantasy. So, thumbs up for me, but I, I, I get that it's a polarizing pick. It is a very interesting movie to talk about. I'm going to start by saying I vastly prefer Vince Vaughn in roles like this and The Cell and stuff like that. Then I like his comedy is so forgettable. And every time I see him in one of these types of movies, like one of these as in anything that's not a comedy, I right. am uh, much more enthralled with his performance. And this is no exception. Um, I, uh, this movie is really weird. Because I'm going to say, it did not hook me for a long time. Oh, <laughs> there really? was a, there was actually, yeah, for like the first two-thirds of this movie, I thought it was going to be at the bottom of my list. Um, hmm. Because I could not suss out what the point of it was. Um, and it, like, for me, it came together towards the end. Uh, I, first of all, was it a big, this is a real Eric nitpick. I was not a big fan of the color grading of the movie. They do that okay. really harsh teal overlay and slightly higher contrast that just, it, it's like really grating to my eyes. I just didn't enjoy it all that much. Um, that all being said, uh, it's, it was just interesting. I went in knowing absolutely nothing about it except for the name and that I guess Vince Vaughn was in it. Um, 
And so a lot of the movie goes by without him actually being in jail. So, so I keep, uh, I guess, I guess maybe this is like, it was suffering from my own expectations because there was pretty early on where, especially at the beginning where he's having a really fucking bad day where he loses his job and he gets squinted at, at the intersection and his wife is cheating on him and it's just shitty. And, um, and I was like, okay, clearly he's going to go off the handle, wind up in jail, and then there's going to be a brawl, almost like the Bilko Project. Uh, yeah. Like, I expected that kind of a thing where he's going to have to fight his way out of an impossible situation, literally. And that is not this movie whatsoever. And I think as no. soon as I started to understand that, the movie gelled for me a lot more. Well, i got to say, the, the first part of the movie that really grabbed me is exactly what you're talking about in that, that terrible day. And then he finds out that his wife's, you know, he steals her phone out of his purse. He's really aggressive about it. Yeah. The thing is, is he's a bully. At his essential nature, he is a bully. He is quick to violence and he is quick to anger. But he's at war with it. He's not one of these bullies like I was talking about earlier who loves the fact that he's a bully. I think Mm -hmm. he kind of hates the fact that he's a bully. And so he sends his wife into the house and then he looks at the car for a few seconds and then he just starts punching the car and he bashes out the window and he punches off this, the rear view mirror and he tears the fucking hood off the car and he throws it across the lawn. And it sounds crazy to describe, but when you watch it, you believe it. Then he goes in, sits on the other side of the room from his, his wife or girlfriend over there, there, there. And she's sitting on the edge of the chair as far away from him as she can safely be. And in a position where if she needed to run out of the room, she could spring like right there. And even when they resolve the initial conflict and she goes to approach him, he says, you better not come too close to me yet. This guy is fucking dangerous. He is fucking dangerous, but he knows that he's fucking dangerous. So... Uh, like I don't like him on his face because I hate bullies, but I like that he doesn't want to be a bully. I like that he's at war with himself. Um, and yeah, we start on possibly what you would think is one of the worst days of his life, and then we cut to eighteen months later or whatever. Yeah, and he's chilled out a bit. <laughs> but we see how things get worse for him, and worse for him, and worse for him, and worse for him. And you keep on thinking, well, how's he going to puzzle his way out of it? How's he going to puzzle his way out of it? And true to his brutal nature, he was never puzzling his way out of it. He was using his bully skills to get the best possible ending for his wife and his kid. I think that's it. I mean, like, first of all, let's talk about the act of violence in this movie, which is against the car, obviously. It was just, he, <laughs> he destroyed that thing. Um, and it, like, and, and again, I, the first time, well, I mean, I've only watched it once, but when I watched it, the, I was kind of lost in the scene because I was, again, anticipating, like, okay, he's going to hit his wife, the cops are going to show up. He's going to break the car, the cops are going to show up. I kept waiting for him to go to jail, and it took a little while for me to realize that that's not the point of the movie. But yeah, there's, like, he's sitting on the couch, and he looks outside, and he looks at the destroyed car, and he's like, you could tell, he's like, I could do this to a person, I could do this to her, I need to chill. Um, and, and that is very different for something like this. Like normally, um, normally a protagonist that like, you get the gentle giant kind of trope where there's like, oh, this person, they have the anger underneath, but it's always underneath. Whereas this is the anger on the outside and the inner part is trying to rein it in. Um, the, uh, the, I think the, the point of this movie, if I could give an elevator pitch to the crowd is that this is about a man and all he knows is 
is how to fight, and he decides at the beginning of this movie that the thing he wants to fight for is is his family, and obviously at the beginning of the movie he sees himself as being part of it, um, and that instinct leads to a point where he gets into a literal fight for his family's life, um, and he has to sacrifice himself for it, and I don't know, I don't know that this movie has, it's really weird, because this is not a very Eric way of looking at things, because in theory, I would argue that Brawl in Cell Block 99 has less of an arc, or less of a defined arc, and you might disagree with this, than say, King of the Ants. Because King of the Ants has changing circumstances and a changed character. And yet, I fucking don't care about King of the Ants at all. Like, that execution is just non-existent. Whereas Cell Block 99... Yeah, exactly. Whereas Cell Block 99, in theory, we have a flatter character in this movie. And we have a flatter story even in this movie. Um, there There is no real situational change. It's just about uh circumstantial tension if that makes sense um and yet by the end of it i am much more on board with seeing this storyline through with this character than i was with any part of king of the ants right um i don't know that i i'm more fascinated by this movie than i think it is good i guess i would say but i do land positively on it like i wouldn't give it a full full-throated endorsement the way you seem to have but I do, I appreciate it quite a bit. And I, I am kind of a sucker uh, for, you know, low-budget movies that do interesting things with what they have. And I think this is one of those. I think oh, that... absolutely. I think that one thing I would personally change, and I don't know, maybe they did this and they realized it didn't work. I think the movie needs music. More music than it has. There is a lot of dead air... And I kept thinking about, like, what's a movie that doesn't have music that really works? And an uh, obvious example is 2001. There's music during the transitionary scenes, or the, estab- the very long establishing shots of 2001 A Space Odyssey. But the moments are sit, uh, like, they just exist to stew on their own, and it really works. Whereas this, I think there are moments that feel stretched out um, a little bit because of, as far as I could tell, because of the lack of music. Right. Um it's neither here nor there because again by the end of it I'm on board in general with the movie uh, but I get the it, like, feeling for that with, beginning part because it's a long movie yeah I get the feeling with Zoller I get the feeling with the director and the writer he's like I said with Blue Ruin he's, he's always walking he's never running uh, but yeah. when these eruptions of violence happen, they really seem to count. I like how the action is handled. It's not the raid or Judge Dread. Like, it's they're fast, brutal fights, but there's they're they're quick and they're hard hits and they're they're brutal. And they, there's nothing sexy or flashy or energetic necessarily about the fight. Uh, just the Vince Vaughn knows he has to get to a different cell block, and in order to get there, it's because of bad behavior. So he's got to go pick a fight, and he just walks over to a couple of guys and starts fighting. And uh, it's just these heavy, hard hits. Having worked in a cell block for a lot of years, I have to mention the portrayal of the prison keepers, <laughs> both the mild prison and the heavy prison. It's, it's not anywhere close to accurate, but in the movie's defense... I don't think it's pretending to be anything close to accurate. By the time the we Don- actually get to cell block 99, you're like, okay, this is fantasy high prison crazy shit. Yeah. 
Don Johnson's like warden is just like <laughs> he he's another bully. In fact, I think that it would have been interesting to see a little bit more of the relationship develop between he and Vince Vaughn and that they kind of are the same person. He's managed to put himself in a position where he gets to enjoy being a bully because he has all these people that he lords over and can, you know, electroshock and torment with glee. But he also has this weird moral compass where if you go too far, he will fucking kill you. So, no, Mm -hmm. it's a complete it's a complete fantasy uh, portrayal of that world. But as far as, you know, giving this 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 repressed bully an arena to play in and villains who are worse than him, people who we want to see have this intense violence put on them, like they kidnap his pregnant wife and are joking about all the terrible things they're going to do to him and he's got to kill this guy and they really rub it in as much as possible. And like they're so shitty to him that you you see a guy's face get skinned off on the floor and you're kind of like, well, you're not indifferent to it, but you're like, yeah, dude, that's the world you were playing in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, get, is... you definitely get the impression that if someone had skinned Vince Vaughn's face on the floor, he'd get it. Yeah, no, no. Everybody's playing the same game, I guess. Uh, it's so over the top, and it does fit within the world. But I would really... I can see a, the wrong person watching this movie and thinking that this was somehow, like, an authentic, gritty prison drama. And it's just fucking not. It's, it, it is... It, it plays it itself is, straight for a really long time. <laughs> but it's a grim... Yeah. It's a grim fantasy. It's a grim fantasy. And I, like please view it in that respect because like if you're taking this seriously like uh i would i would resent it if i thought this was a real honest attempt at being a prison drama or showing what that world would be like i would say no this movie's another failure but as a cringy oh my god action thriller where you want to see this guy how's he gonna how's he gonna resolve the situation it's kind of i found it weirdly hypnotizing like i said i much prefer bone tomahawk i just liked all the characters more so I was more afraid for everybody. Whereas this one, I mean, I guess I, I called it a, on upgrade. The deeper you get into the movie, the more you're getting the feeling like this is not going to resolve <laughs> well, right? Like, this, yeah. this, there's only so many plays that this guy can make. Um, and, and that uncompromising, awful world will continue. But um, it's I, I, hard to compare get, this movie like, to anything I, else. I, I, it's hard to compare it to anything. I find it hard to compare to anything. It else. is like a. It's, I think it's that, a unique I think that this movie. movie. It is very unique. I think that this movie maybe this would take away some of the uniqueness. I think maybe it could have gotten away from being edited differently. And when I say edited, I literally mean like maybe start with him going to jail and then flash back to the really bad day, and you're like, ah, this is how he gets to jail, and then go back to him being in jail, and then flash back to the really, you know, and like maybe you could bounce between those two things and uh, have it. Um, have it be a little bit more engaging during those first segments. Uh, I do think that it is oddly rewarding because he's a big tough guy that never flinches, that never shows any cracks. And at the very end, there's a moment where he's done what he needs to do. He's saved his wife and he's talking to his baby for the last time. And he understands that the gig is up. He is going to die. Yeah. And he starts crying and fuck, it worked for me. Like I, I mm-hmm. felt bad. I was like, like he's like, he did what he had to do, and he's just going to take this moment for himself to be sad that he's never going to see his little girl grow up, and he's never going to hold his wife again, and uh, that's it. And there's some part of me that wants him to just be John Wick and grab a rock on the floor and just start fucking it and like escape from prison, 
but yeah. there's only Done. five minutes left in the movie, and credits take up a considerable amount of time, and he's going to mm-hmm. die, and he knows it. Although I, I will say, there is a part early on where, uh, or not early on, later on, early, early on in the final act, where he does beat up some guards, and he takes a stun gun, and he gives it to another prisoner, and that never comes up again. And I guess, nope. like, I, I like to think that just maybe one day those prisoners come to talk to that guy, and the guy shocks him, and you get him. I was expecting, like, my last little, uh, maybe he'll get out of it, was that, oh, the guards are all bundling around. That other prisoner's going to stun one of them and distract them, and he's going to get out. But, nah. no. Chekhov's stun gun never a, comes back. He was in a deep, dark hole, and he wasn't going to be able to get out of that building. It sucks that it's Don Johnson that puts him down, but he kind of knew that was going to happen. He didn't like the Don Johnson character, and he was a petty bully. But uh, <laughs> the main threat against his family is resolved. He knows that they'll be safe, that they're okay. And... After this, all of the people that he's killed, including a prison guard, it's death or life in prison. And yeah. for him, give me death. And so it's it's a mixed ending. I, again, I still would have loved to see that Don Johnson character at least get a socked in the jaw just fucking once, because I just hate bullies. But uh, yeah. if it's engaging me in that way, if I'm feeling angry on behalf of the movie, I think that suggests that the movie works. Yeah. What are they doing? They're coming. We gotta go. And we die. The longer we wait, the sure that is. Is that a pep talk? Just grab some shit, get ready to run. Here we go. I see the bad moon rising. I see. You breathing? Let him bleed. Careful now. I can't die here. So don't. So we started with this uh, Jeremy Salnier film, uh, Blue Ruin, and we're going to finish with uh, another one of his movies called Green Room. I've been looking at a lot of videos on YouTube lately talking about the best of the decade horror movies. Uh, You know, here we are in 2020, so everybody's looking at the 20 teens saying what, what won and what lost. And it's funny how often I'm bumping into Green Room on these lists of horror movies. I think it speaks to the level of intensity that the movie brings. This punk band ends up in this rural location doing a very sort of private club show for a bunch of skinheads, as it turns out. And either they're not paying attention to their environment or they're being decidedly punk, but they play a loud, obnoxious, very anti-Nazi punk song, and it changes the atmosphere of the room. And they return to their green room, and a new addition has been added to it, in the form of a corpse with a knife stuck in its head. And they are locked in said green room and told that they cannot leave, but that the police are coming. But clearly the police are not coming. And uh, the 
skinhead contingent gets their leader, uh, Darcy, played by Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart's got to be in his 70s, I would say at least. And he is fucking terrifying in this movie. Like, you believe that this guy could tell anybody in this room to go do something, and they would do it. He has real gravitas, and you wouldn't think it would be an easy group to control. They are a lot of, lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, and a lot of anger that they need to point at something. <laughs> so that's, that's what a lot of sort of skinhead racist Nazi movements seem to attract. So how are they going to get out of this room? How are they going to deal with these adversaries? And, um, well, that's basically it. We're sort of thrown into the deep end of that swimming pool with them. And uh, I think the movie's, for a thriller, pretty terrifying. <laughs> like, it's got several scenes where I was, like, climbing the walls in my brain. Like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Oh, my God, what's going to happen? That's my overarching sort of, when I think of the movie, it's just relentless tension. I recently reviewed this movie called Don't Breathe about a home invasion on a blind man's house and it has a similar quality to it and that if you describe the setup it sounds pretty standard but when you're watching the movie it is nakedly terrifying and for that reason for working my nerves so effectively I fully endorse Green Room. If you want to be if you're a fan of horror movies check out this action thriller. And if you're a fan of action thrillers, this might scare the shit out of you. <laughs> so, uh, I'm a big fan of Green Room, but I'm, I'm happy to hear a second opinion. No, uh, you, I'm sorry. You're not going to get a second opinion. I just have your <laughs> opinion that this movie's great. This movie is <laughs> tense. It is intense. Um, the like I, I, I said uh, King of the Ants had one of the most grotesque scenes. This definitely has one of the most painful scenes to watch Ugh. in terms of an act of violence. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, uh, Anton Yelich? Yelchin. Yelchin. It's one of his last Yelchin. movies. Yeah. He, yes. Uh, poor tragedy was taken from us uh, too soon. He's a fantastic actor, and I would have really enjoyed following his career. Yeah. Um, he gets his hand cut, like, in half. And not in half, like, like down between the fingers. Yeah. Oh, it that- is... It's just chilling. A, it's like a metal bar. I don't even know quite what that instrument is. It's just hacking his arm over and over again. But he doesn't. I want thought to it was a machete. Go. Was it a machete? Okay. Uh, but he I thought it was a machete. He was didn't want to let go of that that gun, and he takes several hits before he finally <laughs> relents. And uh, when he apologizes to the group, when he's like mourning that I lost the gun, and he's like, "Dude, you held on to it way longer than I would." have. <laughs> That is the one scene that I do take issue with, though, a little bit. The handoff scene. Oh. I, mean, I mean, it's a, absolutely terrifying, but they are in a, no position to believe this guy's story. Oh, yeah, There's for sure. no fucking reason they should b- believe that giving up the gun is going to help their situation or that he's going to heap up his end of the bargain. No matter how reasonable he pitches his voice through the door, they're looking through the vent. He says he's the only one there. They see several pairs of legs there, like... He's lying to them. He is so clearly lying to them that it's just, it's almost that they just want to believe it's true. They're in such a bad position that they, that part of them just has to believe it. If the police were going to come, they would have been here by now. And if they didn't want you to find that body, they wouldn't have left that body in the green. Like this, this situation is spiraling out of everybody's control and they want to clean it up. They don't want a crime scene in their club, but... 
I do. I, I did. There were points where I found it hard to kind of follow the neo Nazis plans because Patrick Stewart is like, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this. I'm like, wait, what's the. They, know, they were going to move the not, bodies. Not to great detriment, yeah. They were going to move the bodies onto their private property where everything was clearly marked and make it look like they instigated the fight and, you know, bad things happened. When clearly this is a punk band that's just being murdered by a bunch of Nazis. But there's interesting yes. layers to some of the characters. Um, one of the main Nazis is actually played by the same actor who was the lead in Blue Ruin. And he's not a likable character, and he's definitely all in with the whole Nazi lifestyle. But he's got more dimension. He makes decisions in the interest of his group. Like, he's trying to, you know, protect his own. I guess if you don't agree with him, you can at least respect that he's trying where his head's at. Uh, the other guy who we, we find out is was tr- planning an exit with his girlfriend, who was the dead body in the room. Still not a good guy, but in this in this world of grays and blacks, uh, he becomes a hopeful figure to us. Um, strange moments of sweetness. They have this dude who uh, has a bunch of pit bulls that becomes highly problematic <laughs> for them. And... He gets gunned down, and they have this dying pit bull, and they show the pit bull walk up to its master and cuddle him and lay next to his master to die. And I hate that dog, and I hate that dude, but that moment, there was something there. Am I wrong? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, 100%. <laughs> I mean, I will say, going back to like them handing off the gun, I think it's kind of the same thing as with Blue Ruin, where I think if you're... If you have humanity to some extent, it's the same way that Dwight was like trying to parlay with the um, family. They're like, you know, they they want a peaceful resolution to this so badly that they're going to seek it out, even if it's irrational. Um, There, I I will say this Um, controversial stance, I'm sure. I hate Nazis. I hate modern day neo Nazis. Uh, I'm not a fan of murder despite what this episode might have led you to believe if I was in those people's position though and I really don't think of myself as a coward I, I, I at least try not to I would have given the Nazis a knowing nod I would have been like I saw nothing whatever just here for my phone charger and I would have fucking turned and walked the other way and I think that there is a brief moment where they could have chose not to make a big deal of it and they could have left um, I mean, maybe not, but like, I, I, am I wrong? Because I think that if you walk in and you're like, hey, nope, not here, just Nothing that's to your see business, here. and you walk away, I think that they would get it. I, like, I think that you can communicate that like, hey, I am more afraid of you in general than I am of justice not being done for whoever yeah. this is. And I think you just, you leave. Because there are more of them than you. They've already killed someone. You're not helping that person. You're not saving yourself. There's, like, there is nothing to be done for heroics. You need to just bow your head, walk away, and fuck off from rural America is the lesson that I've taken away from this end. I'll take that point, but raise you another one. And again, it's not really a criticism of the movie, but I was just thinking, what would would I do in that situation? Uh, Again, I would not be able to take them at their word because there's a dead body there. And if they didn't want me to see this dead body, why did they, like, why is this playing out? Well, because they killed the body in the green room and then the punk band is about to leave and one of them has to go back because they lost, they right. forgot a phone charger in there. It was, so, pretty, like, they, it was pretty sloppy on their hands, though. Like, yeah. <laughs> there was no reason that they couldn't have done it earlier or later. Why, why do it with witnesses available? But 
The thing is, they break through the floorboards and they find underneath the room that they're in this drug making factory, right? They, the, what was it? Was yeah. it meth or heroin? I can't remember. I want to say it was heroin, but this was another movie that I saw a while ago. I can't remember, the, but it's a drug building operation. Yeah. Once you've discovered that, have another conversation at the door. You can kill us, you can, but before that, we're going to destroy millions of dollars worth of your drugs and your, your, your way of living is right below our feet. We can't do anything about you kicking down this door and fucking with us, but we can destroy all of that shit and make a much bigger mess for you. Or you can all leave and let us leave. And the thing let is, the chips so like, fall. that's definitely a, a bargaining position. But like, I like, where do you? You can all leave. Like, where to hide out by your van so they can finish you off and no. then be done. Like, you, once you're in it, you're in it, and you have to just fight out. Yeah, well, and that's the tr- that's the true thing. But I mean, they it felt like they had another bargaining chip that they didn't necessarily use. There is, there is, and even if you just want to use it to buy time or something. Um, I, or be like, okay, slide a machete under the door. Now you guys are going to hand us a gun. (laughs) Um, I will say once the, once things pop off, the punk rock band, they drop like flies. Like they just get taken out really quick. And then there's another kind of moment of, um, let's call it attention. Like, like, but, uh, not action. Um, and then like, it gets down to two band members really quickly, doesn't it? Well, uh, relatively quickly. Uh, the first two go quickly. The, the, that other female, the bass player, hangs around for a little bit longer. But it gets whittled down to Anton Yelchin and Imogen Poots for the climax. That's for sure. For sure. And uh, that's yeah. another one. Im- I hope I'm saying that name right. Imogen Poots. Uh, I've seen her for a Your while. Your guess is as good as mine. She was in the sequel to 28 Days Later, 28 Weeks Later. I remember seeing her in that. I think she's a British actress. But usually she's playing a lot gentler, sweeter characters. I kind of like the edge that she brought to this chick. <laughs> I believed her in this punk band. And I believed that she got back to New Corner bad enough that she was willing to cut this guy's throat with a box cutter. <laughs> I mean, uh, I would like to, like I've said earlier, I don't think I'd hurt anybody for the wide world. But if, you know... It was about my survival or my kid's survival, and I had to cut a throat. I mean, yeah, maybe that's. Oh, happens. I mean, <laughs> I, I like. I don't. Uh, I, I've never killed anyone, but I like to think. Not like to think, uh, but I, I imagine that. Yeah, if it was me and my own, and it was life or death. Yeah, I would kill the others before I let my own get killed or myself. And granted, and I think that's that's. It's probably easier. Situations. It's yeah. probably easier to justify killing a Nazi who's trying to kill you. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, you'll, you may not. It may not sit well, but you can you can reconcile that kind of violence. Yeah. Uh, there is a white hat, yeah. black hat thing going here. These punks may not all be perfect kids, but the bad guys are really bad <laughs> in this movie. So. And yeah, like these punks are not perfect kids, but they're not Nazis. Goddamn it! It's such a one-way beating for so long that it's so satisfying when shit starts to turn around. Like when they start yes. hitting back, it's like you get really energized by it. Like yes, yes, and I love love how they handle Darcy, the Patrick Stewart's character's end. Yeah, he's been so regal and ruling like a king, and so matter of fact, and. Uh, Taking it seriously, like, he's almost convinced himself that he's legitimate. But when all of his line of defenses have fallen away from him and he's got nobody else to bark orders to and it's just him and these two kids, 
he turns his back and walks away. It's like this really cowardly, I quit. I don't like this anymore. Kind of like, fuck you guys moment, right? And it's so weak. (laughs) And Anton Yelchin has that perfect line to utterly, utterly unman him. He's like, last night in the dark, you were so scary. And now in the daylight, you're just this old man. And I loved it. I loved it. I, there's part of me that gets real schadenfreude in seeing bullies punished. And uh, thank you, Green Room, for giving me that. That said, I get the feeling like Anton Yelchin's character and Imogen Poot's character are never going to be the same after this day. No. I, I think they're perma-fucked by this experience. But this is like, they got out you know, of it. <laughs> I, I almost want... Not 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 a literal sequel to this movie, but I almost want to see the movie where you just you start out with something crazy like this, and I'm sure it exists out there, and I probably have seen a few. But like the first scene would be the last scene of this movie, and the rest of the movie is just, actually that's kind of what Room is. Um, mm-hmm. But the rest of the movie is just dealing with how heavy that stuff is. Uh, there is a movie that tackles that from the early '90s called SFW, but please don't watch it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I get what you're saying. Yeah, like yeah. somebody survives something traumatic, and what does that do to them? Usually, the movie ends with the trauma, and like, and then they with go the on survival to an being like the future. reward. Yeah, yeah, and I guess survival exactly like life that is a reward. Like they did better than the rest <laughs> of their band members, but uh, yeah. I, I mean, like it would suck, but I would rather be Anton Yelich and alive, even if like I mean, I definitely don't want people to hurt my hand, but. I'd rather be in that position than be dead. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's another great thing in the movie. You just never feel safe. I never knew how this was going to work out. It really felt like it could go any and either way for me. It wasn't like Upgrade where I anticipated the dark ending or it it didn't feel like it was inevitably going to work down to the final girl like your average slasher. It's unpredictable and unbelievably tense such a nail biter yes. i gotta say like i, I can't hit that strongly enough because uh, it's sort of advertised as like an action movie but it really plays like a no it's the movie. silent movies it's the silent moments that have weight yeah so um yeah, please watch green room <laughs> yeah what are you why are you guys listening to this pods this podcast and go find green room and watch it <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I guess we can say the Selnia guy. I'm going to keep an eye on him. I, I've only seen three out of his four movies, but I've liked them. <laughs> so yeah, check him out. incredibly violent list of movies like uh, uh i guess this season of rank and review is there's been a lot of like less horror oriented episodes than usual but even by the ones that did have horror in it I, I i'd have to check but i think this has probably got one of the highest body counts of any episode in like a couple of years as far as like well i mean but yeah between upgrading green room even like that's just that's a lot I mean, I guess that's not fair because I did that uh, special episode on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I suppose oh, if, yeah. I, if I if I added up the corpses in that one, it would be pretty tall. But my point is, this episode, Acts of Violence, is more gruesome than most of my horror episodes. And a couple of these movies, I could forgive someone for 
like I said, putting it in their top ten list of horror movies because they're just sure. that intense and that brutal. Uh, so like I said, even though I had problems with a couple of the movies, I, for the most part, had a good time with this list. And I hope you did too. But uh, it's that time. What was your least favorite and why? I mean, it's not going to surprise anyone that listened. Uh, but King of the Ants is just a mess. Um, in sixth place, King of the Ants, it's... Uh, yeah, I don't know what exactly went wrong with this movie because I'm not entirely sure what this movie going right looks like other than like I said my first obvious cut would be getting rid of the romance angle but even then like what was the point of the movie was the point to get to that part where he's his head is beaten in and grotesque because if you do that I'd almost rather it go full horror and have that happen within the first act and have the rest of the movie him being this horrific deformed person hunting these other people down or like there's so many other directions you could go with it that are directions whereas yeah. this movie kind of feels like it just kind of hopped from event to event first you're tailing a guy then you kill him then there's consequences and like those moments to moments track but as a whole it just doesn't sit well with me and like i just don't understand what the point of the ending was like at the end of the day he he eventually just kills the other gangsters and then what like th then what he still has no money he's like I guess he'd still be, I don't know, it's its not worth putting the energy into because I'm never going to watch it again and I'm probably not going to think about it very much again. Um, I think King of the Ants might be the lowest budget movie in this list. And I think I'm going to follow, not I think, I'm going to follow it up with what was probably the highest budget movie in this list. Running Scared is my second uh, least favorite because <laughs> the same thing, there's something so manic about it and it just doesn't uh, like no part of it lands and there's so many parts of it to have them all kind of fall flat is just really disappointing and i will say like weirdly enough like i wasn't really on board with it during the beginning and then like there was some i don't remember what the point was but there was a point towards the middle where i started getting a little caught up in it and endeared and and i forget when that ended, but towards the end, I was like, nah, I'm, uh, I'm out again. You, I'm sorry. You, you lost me. Like <laughs> you overplayed your hand. Um, I don't know. It's big. It's flashy. Watch lock, stock and two smoking barrels. Watch lucky number Slevin. Watch like there's other movies with this. There's other movies that this, uh, the town, I mean, maybe the town's slightly different, but there are movies of this ilk that, are Do worth it better. your time and and they execute much better than this one did. Um, in third place, I need to see what the actual movies are. I think that leaves me with upgrade. Um, upgrade, upgrade's weird because I don't like I I heavily enjoyed parts of it and I was indifferent to others and more or less I kind of come away from upgrade. Uh, not indifferent towards the movie, but just not feeling strongly about it, if that makes sense. Like, it's a, I have positive feelings about it, but as well done as it was, it wasn't, um, it wasn't memorable enough. And I think, like, not to give away the rest of my list, but there were two movies that I saw several months ago, Upgrade and Green Room. And I remember a lot of details about Green Room, and I don't remember a lot about Upgrade. And I think that kind of speaks to where something. my yeah. heart is at. And if I and and I wouldn't if I'd watched it last night, maybe I would feel better about it or stronger or whatever. But it kind of like I remembered enjoying it, but I didn't remember the movie itself all that much. And um, uh, yeah, like you said, like that says something to it. Uh, following that, so that was my third pick. Fourth is, uh, or I guess in third place, third place. is 
uh, brawl in cell 99 even though the brawl is like the weakest definition of a brawl this kind of just like a fight i definitely it's was imagining a, like, a series of fights <laughs> yeah I, I went in kind of a picturing riot in cell block 99 yeah. and it's just like nah there's a brawl to be fair I, to be fair yeah. calling the film a series of fights in cell block 99 just not quite the same ring to it doesn't roll off the tongue yeah <laughs> It's it's a weird it's an interesting movie because like I said I was uh, I was expecting something completely different and I feel like once I kind of got on the same wavelength as the film itself a lot of it clicked a lot more for me and I think that it was worthwhile for me again to just get to that moment at the very end where Vince Vaughn's character finally cracks and finally just lets the weight of the consequences of what's happened land on him that to me was one of the more impactful moments of this uh, entire lineup of movies. Right. Um, not, not the standout moment, but like it's the thing that like it lands so strongly for me that I can forgive all these other quips uh, or quibbles that I have about it. Um, and then on top of that, like it was fun just watching Vince Vaughn do his thing as a large man <laughs> being yeah. able to fight his way through stuff. And like we skipped over some of it. There's some brutal parts in this movie. Like we were talking about how he's clearly a very strong violent man reined in and as soon as those reins are let go, there's a guard at the soft prison, the minimum security prison that's like, "Hey man, sorry I was ripping you later." And he responds by breaking that guy's arm backwards. Yeah. It is gnarly and then they're like okay i don't know why the fuck you did that you're coming with us and then he does it to another series of uh guards and these people were like it's a prison but they were mostly friendly and mostly nice and you like like we're saying vince von's character never revels in it but he is a guy that hurts other people yeah um and is really good at it (laughs) he's really good at it i i don't know that i'm gonna return to this movie anytime soon but I enjoyed my time with it uh, for sure. And like, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say other than it took me a while to get in sync, but once I did, it really clicked. Um, followed up by Blue Ruin is my second pick. Nice. I, uh, yeah, I think that there's, I have this philosophy, and if you ever watch my uh, year-end review long-ass YouTube videos that I do with my friend Gray, we, can, we kind of approach our uh, rankings like this, where I think there are two elements to any movie that is the story that it is telling and the way that it is telling that story. I think every other element of a movie plays service to one of those two things. The acting, this music, the cinematography, everything is either telling the story and giving you more information or is part of the delivery mechanism of the, the, that information. With that being said, I think Blue Ruin doesn't have a terribly interesting story. And I think the parts where they try and make it more interesting didn't land for me. Because like I said, at the end of the day, the family that he's kind of going to war against were always kind of bad guys to me, and they never managed to twist that around. But the movie's rescued so much by the way that it tells that story. And that, to me, is the impactful part, is the way that it chooses to um, dole out its moments of tension and moments of violence, its acts of violence. The way that the acting is, the way that things uh, hit 10 really quickly and then die down, the way that it goes for long stretches without dialogue, all of that stuff works so well. And that's what elevates the movie for me. It is the storytelling, not necessarily the story. Right. Green Room is my number one pick. 
because I think it nails both of those elements. Um, and I think, like, I don't, I don't know what to say other than just sit here and praise it and say you should watch Green Room. It is horrific. It is tense. It is sad. It is, there are moments of triumph. It is satisfying. It is really a really, really strong watch. And like you said, I'm going to be, oh, I forget what his name is, but the, the director, um, yeah, Sanye, uh, his two movies were my top two. I will be watching his career with great interest. Uh, Murder Party and Hold the Dark. Hold the Dark is a Netflix yes. exclusive. Netflix, only... so I could go watch that right now. Yeah, I've only watched the first half an hour and some of that, but I, I, I do intend to finish it. Uh, but I have seen Murder Party, and I can endorse it. It is even cheaper than Blue Ruin, just, just so you know what you're watching. But I wouldn't say don't watch it. Just know it's a low-budget movie. This, uh, this guy seems like a perfectly uh, competent filmmaker. So for me, it doesn't matter as much what the budget is. My, what matters is how you use it. And he seems to me to have proven that he can use a budget. He can. Um, unfortunately, we're not going six for six. But I think we're, we're a lot closer than maybe you were anticipating. Basically, this has got two movies on the list that I don't like but I want to like. That I'm weirdly cheering for and like want to be better than they are. And then I've got four movies that I legitimately enjoy and would would recommend. So we're going to start off in agreement. As much as it pains me to put a Stuart Gordon film in last place, The King of the Ants is just in last place. It's weird because you can sort of see how they almost have good stuff. Like the ingredients are there. Maybe the proportions are off. I honestly think some better casting. Uh, the, the sort of secondary torturer guys the one guy has a weird accent and there's the black guy the australian yeah yeah neither of them seemed that strong or believable to me and that central performance if there was supposed to be a change in his character i didn't see it and that's just if there was and the fact that i yeah. don't know probably speaks to the fact that there's problems with the movie i have a soft spot for Stuart gordon but there it sits and yes running scared is clearly fifth like um it's there's something desperate about it. It's like, look at me, look at me. You're liking this, right? Look how fucking cool that was. Look how grisly that crime scene, that 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 shootout was. Look how badass these characters are. And there's just it was flailing almost desperately. Like, I really need this movie to be successful. So what do I have to put in it to fucking blow people's minds? And I gotta say, having seen his previous work, he's so good with character. He's so good with relationships. And watching this movie. You would never believe that, <laughs> but it's true. I like. Please check out the cooler. It's it's genuinely really good movie, and it's got Maria Bello in it, and she's gorgeous, and uh, it's worth your time. Um, but no, Running Scared solidly situates itself in fifth place, despite having very memorable moments as a whole. It just doesn't do it for me. Now, this is probably the most controversial place. If you're going to be mad at me, it's going to be my fourth position. I put Blue Ruin in fourth position. No! What have you done? You Larry, no! son of Why a bitch! Um, Betrayal! <laughs> I really like the movie. I like the crazy levels of tension that we reach to. I think because we spend so much of the movie in uncertainty, while you're watching it, that's sort of what keeps you going in it. But it's one of those things, once you know the movie... I don't think it has the repeat business that Green Room does for me no. in that way. Um, and you're right. I think that as good as it is, it would have been more interesting if we were working Shades of Grey. 
because like our main character full on murders a guy, but we're clearly yeah. like but we're okay with it. Like these people are awful. <laughs> like clearly that was the right thing to do. Clearly there was no other way for you to handle it. I would not say not to watch the movie. The fact that it's ranking fourth is just because it's in a tough bunch of movies. So there it Rough. was. In third place, I'm putting Upgrade. Um, it just overperformed for me. Lee Winnell has been very good in the horror genre. Here he's sort of dipping his toes into sci-fi. He creates a believable world of the future. The, the action sequences, the fighting, how that is handled, like both with the camera and the performance... Like, if you don't like anything else in the movie, those sequences, I think, make the movie worth checking out pretty much by yeah. themselves. I just think that, for me, the weakness is they were going for a gotcha ending, and I knew where we were headed by the halfway point. It just That's just how I felt. But maybe that's more me than, than anything else. Perhaps overperforming, getting all the way to second place, I'm putting Brawl in Cell Block 99. I guess... I can't believe that we got off by just Blue Ruin. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. I, I, unlike you, connected to the movie pretty quickly. Like, that hmm. scene where he beat the shit out of his car and this sort of repressed, dangerous violence. Like, the fact that he was a dangerous person, but he knew and owned the fact that he was a dangerous person kind of set the table for me to get into the vibe of the movie. And... After we see him beat the shit out of the car, all of a sudden it becomes really credible that he can snap a guy's leg like it's a branch or like, you know, he's got this real danger to him. And uh, I, I just, I like this writer-director. I mean, he tends to let his movies breathe a little bit more than sometimes people are comfortable with, but I feel the hits. When, when shit goes down in Zalner's work, I really feel it. I connect emotionally, and uh, that's when I know a movie's working. When I get mad or I get upset or I get, like, disappointed at a character's fate, I'm not thinking about, you know, craft services or the director of photography <laughs> or, or how grungy and artificial those prison sets are, you know? I just, I, I, I'm just in it, and... I have a very analytical, critical mind. So to sweep me up in the, to cast that spell and let me lose myself in it, that's what I'm looking for. And that happened with this movie. So points. I, I am wondering if maybe I set myself up for, for I mean, just like specifically with uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99, if my uh, presumptions about it um, kind of artificially diluted the parts that did work at the beginning because uh, while they worked for me, they ended up working retroactively. Um, fact, and yeah. so I just, I just had like this memory of like kind of sitting through the first two thirds and then having it click. Whereas if I think if I had like a, or maybe, maybe weirdly enough, if I had like read a summary, right. I would have understood a little bit more of what was going to happen. And I wouldn't have gone in with the anticipation of how it was supposed to play out. And then I could have aligned my expectations accurately from the beginning and then just been on board. Hmm. Alas, but we're coming back to agreement yeah. for number one, because green room just, yeah. Utterly, utterly scary movie. <laughs> and uh, big points to Patrick Stewart. Big points for all of the cast members who played the band. The stakes just seem to keep on getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and then the tipping point where they finally start hitting back and they start hitting back effectively. And by the time they're being led through the woods to where, you know, the, the staged crime is being taken place of, they've, they've kind of taken over being the real brutal, scary threat in the movie. 
but I'm thrilled with it. I'm like, get those motherfuckers. Like, oh my <laughs> yeah. God. And again, I'm emotionally involved in the movie. It was one of those ones that when I saw it, I was like, who do I have to tell to go see this movie? Like, I wanted to like, someone else needs to be it's... subjected to this. <laughs> I'm glad it was me. It has actually been on my radar since it came out. I just kind of slipped by. And it was one of the movies that got me to pick this list because I knew – I still can't believe Upgrade doesn't have Tom Hardy in it. Anyways, I knew <laughs> <Sorry>. about Upgrade. <laughs> I knew about Upgrade and I – like Green Room was actually very high on my uh, backlog. Um, right. And so once I saw those two movies, I was like, mm, this is the list. Yeah. Well, Tom Hardy's not an upgrade. I'm sorry. He is in Venom, which I think is less good than Upgrade, personally. <laughs> like I said, uh, Upgrade was the movie for me that Venom should have been. <laughs> but uh, Fair that's, enough. that's just how I felt. But generally speaking... I'm very strong... happy I saw Green Room. It's a strong bunch of movies, generally speaking, for me. Even even yeah. King of the Ants and Running Scared, which I didn't like, I wanted to like. Like, I was on their side. I wasn't standing there arms folded the whole time. I kept on hoping that the next scene was going to click into place for me. It just didn't end up happening. <laughs> but uh, more, for the most part, I actually had a good time with this list. So uh, thanks for being here yet again. Yeah, this is a decently good list. For sure, for sure. And do send some love to Ashley I for me. I have stuff I want to plug. Oh, please. I will. Please, please, please. Ashley, Larry, Larry says hi. So first, um, at some point, I am going to be doing a 2019 full year in review with my friend Gray as we've been uh, doing. I have watched a vast majority of the films that have come out in 2019. Um, I have some favorites. I don't know when we're going to find time to do that, but it will be uh, it will be in the first half of the year. <laughs> okay. Um the other thing, another thing I'm doing with Gray, another project, is I actually have a podcast. And it's actually, like, we, we've we actually put a, a weird amount of kind of uh, um, production and emphasis on uh, putting them out semi-regularly. Uh, not semi-regularly. They come out every week on Sunday at noon, unless I get distracted and can't post. Uh, oh, it's dude, called Welcome to know. Riverdale. Welcome yeah. to Riverdale? Okay. Welcome to Riverdale. It is a podcast where Gray, the Netflix series Riverdale, which is based on the Archie comics, yeah. uh, Gray has watched it, and I have not. So we go episode by episode with me watching it and trying to kind of make sense of this really, really weird take on the Archie characters. I have um, to say, I mean, maybe this will be the thing that gets me to watch it. My wife's obsessed with the show. I've been so resistant to it. Like, uh, well, generally, I'm shields up on Netflix. Netflix as an entity infuriates me. But uh, uh, everyone's all in on this Riverdale. And do we need, like, a dark-as-fuck, dark night approach on fucking Archie? It's not. What? It's so... It's, you, maybe listen to the podcast, because, like, it's such a weird show. It's so... <laughs> it's not... It's not... The hook is not that it's dark. The hook is that clearly someone signed something on the legal writing saying that they could do whatever they wanted with the characters, and they are going crazy with their concept. It is nuts. And I don't necessarily know that it's good, but it is crazy. I mean, maybe the podcast is for you. Like, I would say... I I promise I'll give it a chance. I've got uh, got an increasing sort of family of podcasts that I'm going here. So I'll make a point of... Plugging your podcast, I'll give a chance. I'm going on a, a, a vacation in May. I'm going to be walking across Spain on Spain and the El Camino oh, Trail, and nice. I'm intending on bringing a lot of stuff to listen to uh, for that. So I'm hoping to catch up on my podcasts. But I will definitely plug "Welcome to Riverdale" on my show. I wish you'd mentioned it before because I would have done it before now. Um, but yeah, uh, that's, that's awesome. all right. 
I do have one more thing. I don't know if oh. you've seen this on Facebook. Okay. Um, but Ashley and I uh, have bought a bike shop um, oh. here in Vancouver. We own a bike shop. Now, you might hear that and go like, oh, cool. You, like must be like a little corner store. You have a few bikes to do some repairs. Maybe Ashley's bringing out the inventory and I'm in the back with my hands all greasy. No, 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 no. We actually bought the largest commuter bike store in Vancouver and possibly in Canada, except I don't know how big the stores in Toronto are. Um, wow. It is like, yeah, it is a bit of a story. It's called the bike doctor. Um, there's, it was a crazy series of events, but yeah, we now own what is the largest by square foot and one of the most successful previously, hopefully it keeps, it keeps up the performance now that our financial well-being is on the line. Um, and that's what it. I do now. And that is, yeah. Congratulations. Uh, that's so really exciting. Thank you. It's been insane. Uh, it is such a time sink. Uh, I'm actually a little impressed that I managed to get this episode going. Um, it's been such a big uh, undertaking, and we're only halfway to opening, and then it opens, and that's its own thing. But I, I definitely want the wider world to know that Ashley and I own the Bike Doctor. Go to uh, thebikedr.com is the website, uh, and you can go to like our Facebook or whatever, follow along. Absolutely. I, I, I can plug the Bike Doctor, too. When in Vancouver area, <laughs> check yeah. out the Bike Doctor. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, make sure that your lovely wife is watching her strange animal movies. Cause, uh, Are you watching your strange animal movies, Ashley? She has a guilty look on her face. That sounds like a no. That's okay. I don't mean to be add any pressure to you guys, <laughs> but it's always lovely to have you guys on the podcast. And um, For sure. Thank you so much. Enjoy thank British you. Columbia. I know I do. <laughs> yeah, I love it here. Uh, good enough. Boom. All right. Right on. You have been listening to the podcast Rank and Review. This was episode 163, and the theme was Acts of Violence. My name is Larry Parsons. I'm your host in Random Canadian, and my guest this episode was Eric Jurgens. And um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you have some feedback to send me. You can do that at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. My website is rankandreview.ca. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. I do very much appreciate it. Please tell a friend about the show, and please check out Eric's podcast, and check out some of the other podcasts which are friendly to my show, those being The Terror Table, The Shelf Shedding Movie Podcast, and Cobwebs, a Gothic Horror Podcast. I drop every other Wednesday. Thank you so much for your ears.